Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Wayne. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best damn Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be the retro show for the month of August 2023. So what we do on the retro show is we time travel. We take a look back in time to 21 years previously. We caught the corresponding month going here. So we're going to go back to August of 2002. And you guys, what a time to be alive. No, you're not going to protest this yeah. time, Wes. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. What, what it, it it was the time we were alive. That's fine. I, I was holding for applause there. Um, <laughs> but oh yeah, the the sun was shining. We were living in the Willennium, and you know what else? Barry Bonds hit home run number six hundred on August 9th. So there you go. Famous cheater hit a famous home wow. run. Yeah, another one of baseball's great achievements that they can't celebrate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but you know um. You know, I'll probably, I think eventually this guy, you know, for, for our listeners listening in August of 2002, our, our time traveling listeners, uh, he, Barry Bonds in the year 2023 will not be in the Hall of Fame. I think eventually he gets in though, just because the, uh, the old guard will, of, of the baseball writers that are voting will eventually just retire and move on with their lives. And then the younger writers, you know, though those spry 45 year olds will say like, yeah, he's part of the baseball story. We'll let him in. But even after 600 home runs, Barry Bonds not in the Hall of Fame. But in addition to historical events, we'll also talk about the games and the music and the movies that came out in August 2002. And let's get right into it because I think we've already started here. All right, Ryan, did you have any? Did you have any events that you wanted to uh, bring up? N- noteworthy things. I have two minor events. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one is that Arthur Anderson had to surrender their cpa license for the whole enron collapse that occurred you know if you if you were going contemporaneously the collapse of enron had occurred about six months prior maybe Mm. eight months prior around that um so arthur anderson basically had to give up their cpa license and close arthur anderson if you're wondering employed eighty-five thousand people this was a huge huge company one of the biggest auditors in america so their collapse was a huge huge deal Mm. Um, really called into question their entire practices that was one event that occurred the other one and it's i know technically it's music related but we're not going to talk about this in music but kids bop 2 is released Uh, Uh, and it's still going yeah (laughs) two Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of those a lot of those compilation uh like themes that were so prevalent that are still going today i thought it was just noteworthy that one got kicked out so yeah, uh, they, like if you've ever listened to one, it's basically just like really shitty renditions of modern pop songs. Are you super, like kid choruses. super by, sanitized? By, yeah. yeah. Sung by adults pretending to be children. Oh, is that true? Probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did have one other historical event. So on August 23rd, 2002, uh, a woman, Michelle Knight, disappeared after leaving her home in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, she was abducted. We won't find out till like uh, a decade later. I think it's 13 years later. Spoilers. That yeah, uh, a man named Ariel Castro of Ohio kidnapped her and two other women and held them captive in his home for like 13 years when they finally escaped. And the uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely nuts. Yeah, August 23rd, 2002 is when she was taken. Um, um yeah, real really a positive note to begin. Uh, <laughs> the podcast on yeah on that note here's video games like well i didn't <laughs> tell you about the one dc sniper event too but <laughs> well there's that so yeah. might as well we're on such a 
Well, actually, there's one of the weirder moments of the whole DC sniper scenario because you know they're driving across country. At this point, it doesn't really boil over until September and October. So that's common. The next two two months, I'll, I'll talk more about the fallout from all of that. But the last hit that they had, essentially, they shot a man. I think he was pumping his gas. A 54 year old man, um, who did not die and in fact played dead as they loot, looted what they thought was his corpse. Um, okay. Yeah, one of them, like, more... I mean, he, he survived, so that's... I mean, I guess there's some positivity to it in that regard. But yeah, just another senseless killing of, of these these idiots as they're traveling from Washington to... Uh, Washington State to Washington, D.C. Mm. Mm-hmm. I do have a quick correction. Um, when we talked on the retro show previously, we talked about E3 of 2002, and I mentioned that Satoru Iwata would become president of Nintendo at some point, and he actually was president during that uh, Nintendo Direct. He became president of Nintendo in 2002, and that's actually a noteworthy uh, historical, like, gaming-related thing that uh, we probably should have talked about back in the day. That is at best a clerical error. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he he was president of Nintendo for quite some time until he passed away. Um, Yeah. And... Uh, it was at the helm for the, the most of the GameCube's life cycle, the GBA, as well as massive successes like the Wii and the DS, and some not-so-great successes like the Wii U. Um, but it was also uh, at the helm right up until just before the Switch came out. So went out on a high note. But there are a number of GameCube games worth oh. talking about. Let's, let's do this. And Wes, I'm going to let you decide. Do you want to start with Super Mario Sunshine or Super Monkey Ball 2? Let's start with Monkey Ball and end on a high note with Sunshine. Um, you know, Monkey Ball 2 is, isn't is a slouch of a game. Um, it was developed by Amusement Vision and published by Sega, of course. Uh, it's a Sega franchise. Um, Amusement Vision, I don't know if we've talked about them before. It's uh, one of Sega's internal development studios. Um, but they're like web of internal development studios even more convoluted than Nintendo's. But basically, when Sega was acquired and merged with Sammy in 2004, Amusement Vision was like absorbed and rebranded uh, as another studio, which still exists, and they work on uh, Yakuza games. So it went from Monkey Ball to Yakuza, which is funny. Uh, but they also did, um, you know, of course, the Monkey Ball games. So we, the first one that we talked about back at the GameCube launch, and they'll also make F Zero GX, which is a GameCube game that we'll talk about on a later show in the coming months. But Monkey Ball Two was developed by Toshihiro Naga. Nag- God damn it! I practiced this so many times. <laughs> Uh, Tashihiro Nagoshi. Uh, he was a longtime designer, director, producer at Sega, uh, producer and director of the Monkey Ball games, of course, as well as the uh, Yakuza series. He's now a creative director at Sega and sits on the board of directors for Atlas, who's a big CEO over there now. But to, like Super Monkey Ball, just like uh, as the high level stuff, it's like a Marble Madness style, like puzzle maze game where you have to balance the monkey in a ball down a route without falling over the edges uh, to hit the goal uh, or like I have to like avoid pitfalls in the middle of the track and things like that. The thing that separates Super Monkey Ball 2 from the first one is there is a, a, a robust single player mode um, with like multiple levels per world, like 10 levels per like zone. 
Um, it'd take like a good five or six hours to work through. So, you know, pretty substantial for a monkey ball game. Uh, tons of multiplayer options. There's a racing mode. And that's where the, the um, four GameCube controller ports uh, come in handy. Uh, there's a racing mode, uh, bowling, golf, tennis, baseball, billiards. Um, and it reviewed really positively. It got uh, like mid eights and low nines. I think uh, currently has an overall score of a 97 on, no, not sorry, not 97, 87 on Metacritic. So really uh, well-reviewed game. Pretty good. It did not manage to sell very well, though. It didn't sell a million, only moved about uh, 760,000 copies. Not what you want to see when uh, you know, you're trying to sell your video games. I remember actually playing this game back in the day. Yeah, loving it. It's very much like a just a you know, it's like physics puzzle kind of mm -hmm. thing. And they kind of put their thing in the wrappings of like different sports, I guess you could say, like different. You know, like you're saying, it wasn't just like navigating it down a ramp. They would do like bowling, or they would do like I remember there was like a soccer one or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they had all these different play modes that you could do. And I think you can get the the a remake of the first one on Switch, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, Wes, can you do a quick fact check? Um, and, well, so even though Monkey Ball 2 doesn't manage to sell a million, it did get a reprint um, on the GameCube. So back on, on the GameCube, they would do, like, a, a player's choice reprint of the game. They give, like, a little yellow triangle in the corner that said player's choice and let you know, like, hey, this was a popular game on the system. And they would knock the price down to... 20 bucks, except for some games like Smash Brothers Melee, that held its price at 30 bucks, even when it went player's choice. Um, but they only do that for games that sell a million. And for Monkey Ball, what they did is said, like, okay, let's combine the sales of Monkey Ball 1 and 2, package them together in a reprint, and then we can call it player's choice because together combined they sold a million units. Yeah, so they have Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz HD on the Switch. I wonder which one Banana Blitz was. I have no idea. Neither do I. Well, that's the one that's on the Switch. Okay. So if this uh, you know series does continue to to move along in some form, anyway, you know, See, I want. It's weird that it's sold so badly because I mean there was a time where everybody was talking about Monkey Ball. Yeah. At least in like my schools and everything like that. Like it just it seemed like it was. I don't know. It's if I felt like this would be. I'm surprised that it was only a million. Hmm. I feel like this should. I feel like this. I wouldn't have guessed that low. Though the ceiling should be higher on this franchise than it. I mean, I personally have no investment in this game. I'm not interested in it. I, I'm watching a, a gameplay of it right here. I'm just like this. Longtime Monkey Maybe. Ball fan, Wes. Yeah, Maybe long... Super Monkey Ball 2 is like the hipster pick. Because mm. we talk about this in music all the time, where it's like the most popular album of the month sold 50,000 copies. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like, Maybe Super Monkey Ball 2 was more talked about than it was actually played. Maybe. Maybe. It's possible. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, is this part of our franchise rankings? Yes. Okay, we just haven't done it yet, or did we do it? Uh, we're going to get to it in just a second here. Uh, but first of all, over under, uh, a used copy for the single pack, not the player's choice dual pack, but just a single copy of Super Monkey Ball. What do you guys think for just the disc, not necessarily with a box or anything, over or under 50 bucks? Oof. I'm going to go under, because I, I don't think people care. What do you think, Ryan? Uh... Gosh, I guess I would probably say, I'll say over. It is under. You can get a used copy for about twenty bucks. No one cares. <laughs> wow, there's no draw to this game. And if you're if you're curious, the the dual pack that Players Choice dual pack with the first and second game, uh, over a hundred bucks for a used copy. Yeah. Um, 
And now let's rank it. So, you know, I think uh, just based on reviews, this game probably goes above the first Super Monkey Ball and with like the extra single player and multiplayer options, uh, just an overall better package. Super Monkey Ball 1 right now sits at number 11. Um, do you guys think that this uh, Super Monkey Ball 2 goes above or below Gauntlet? Right now, Gauntlet... I would think above Gauntlet. Above Gauntlet. Right now, Gauntlet Dark Legacy is our number 9 ranked team. How about above... I, I'm surprised we're not just keeping these two things together. Are they really that substantially different? It seems like it's just another iterative. Yeah. I feel like we should Super just clump them together in some weird... Like, if, if, if we're to believe that Super Monkey Ball 2 is in any way, like, an advancement <laughs> so, in the franchise of Super Monkey Ball, then I guess maybe we could so, so eight and move it up a few spots. Here's here's the question. Um, I, if you guys think that these games belong together, you know, if I, I'm outvoted. I've, I'm totally comfortable with that. But if we're grouping... Wes, I like this power. I like having this power. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly aroused right now. Just <laughs> massive. Just... Uh, if we're keeping them together, do we move them both above Gauntlet Dark Legacy? Or do we like have you know Super yeah. Monkey Ball you know as what? one entry, like Super Monkey Ball 1 plus 2 as one ranked, not like right next to each other, but simultaneously together? Sounds crazy, but I think we do it. Okay. Uh, but then yeah. does Super Monkey Ball 1 and 2 go above Sonic? Certainly not. Okay. So we're going to put Super Monkey Ball right now. It, it would rank number 9. Um, nothing else really gets moved all around all that much because number 11 just gets deleted. Oh, oh! you're saying like Monkey Ball is now number 9 and Gauntlet's now 10? Uh, yes, Gauntlet remains in the top 10. Oh, come on. Ten, Gauntlet's better than Monkey Ball. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, so now <laughs> Oh, we're... come on. Oh, come on. I misunderstood. When you said above, I thought you meant like a past 10. Oh, oh no, I'm, I'm talking about like 1 is the highest. Oh yeah, so, yeah it's not going up. It's not going above Gauntlet. What is wrong with you? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll allow it. I'm fine with this. <laughs> uh, above NBA, I'll be offended by this. But but above NBA Street. Yeah. Okay. So sure. so so basically, yeah. what happened by combining Super Monkey Ball one and two, we just like moved it from below NBA Street to above NBA Street. <laughs> it became better than one game. See yeah. there. Yeah, that seems. Yeah, by by, it takes two games to be NBA Street. Okay. So so right now, let's let's go through before we get to Mario Sunshine. We're just gonna go through the the top ten real quick. Uh, Smash Brothers okay. Melee, obviously at number one. Resident Evil Remake, Eternal Darkness, Star Wars Rogue Leader, Pikmin, Luigi's Mansion, SSX Tricky, Sonic Advance Two, Gauntlet Dark Legacy, Super Monkey Ball One and Two. That's our top ten That's GameCube fun. as of August two thousand two. But then in August of two two thousand two. We got a Mario game, fellas. And that game was Super Mario Sunshine. Um, I'm fine with Gauntlet being at number 10. That's fine. <laughs> there, there's, lots more, there's lots more games on the GameCube. Yeah, uh, but better, better than Gauntlet. <laughs> we do get Double Dash at some point. I pooped my pants for this game, John. <laughs> In the arcade, I remember. What a great story. Tell it again. No. <laughs> Uh, Mario Sunshine was developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Nintendo, of course. We talked about Nintendo EAD a number of times. It's like they're the, the main development house over at Nintendo. Uh, a game directed by Yoshiaki Koizumi. Mr. Koizumi joined Nintendo in 1991 as an artist and designer for 
Mario World, Yoshi's Island, the Zelda games for the N64, and A Link to the Past. Uh, he also, you might recognize him, he appeared in a few directs from time to time uh, after Mr. Iwata stepped away from that for health reasons. Uh, and he's still the main producer of the 3D Mario games. Uh, Mario Galaxy, of course, most recently. Or, sorry, uh, Mario Galaxy, I think, was the first one that he um, produced himself, and then Mario Odyssey most recently. Uh, of course, as the most recent 3D Mario platformer. but Also listed as creative executive mm. on the Super Mario Brothers movie. Oh, nice. Yeah. Man of many talents. Mm -hmm. uh, do you guys have much experience with Mario Sunshine? I played a little of it with the the bundle that came out on the Switch. Mm -hmm. I played a little bit with that all-star game. Uh, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, it uh, they didn't really change a whole lot from the original game. Pretty much just like a, an HD up-res. And I think that uh, rework a couple of the controls because um, if you remember, the GameCube has the, the left and right triggers or, or shoulder bumpers that have like the click. Uh, so you can depress them and like give them an extra little click. Um, and that would affect the way Mario uses the Flood backpack. So... Uh, actually, Mr. Koizumi, I think it was, had the idea to have like a, a water pack in a Mario game back on the Super Nintendo, but uh, Shigeru Miyamoto and a couple of others didn't think that it was a great fit for a Mario platformer, um, but managed to talk them into it for Mario Sunshine. And what it would do is, like, uh, Mario, of course, runs around. He he sprays water at things, and it's the kind of used to, to stun enemies. There are enemies corrupted with some sort of sludge or goo, and you have to clean them off in order to engage with uh, them in a more, like, traditional Mario fight sense. Um, but there... Oh, and then there's, like, uh, this stuff spread across the ground as well, and it's it's very slick, and it interferes with the, your traction of running around. So having a clear path in front of you will allow you to, like, have the momentum you need to make the, the, the jumps that you want to do. Um, but the, when it comes to the, the controls, when you are just holding down the shoulder button without clicking, Mario is mobile. He can run around when using the flood water gun. But when you click it in, that's when he becomes stationary and you get more free aiming with the flood nozzle rather than uh, moving around, just kind of shooting just directly in front of you. So uh, in addition to being able to spray water in front of you, it also can convert into a, a um, not really a jetpack, but more of like a, a hover device where the water sprays down, allows you to stay suspended in air for a few extra seconds. Um, there are some times in this game where you need to do some really precise platforming. You have to walk like some, some tight wires and having the extra little insurance of being able to hover in air and adjust your jump um, as you go can be very useful. There are also times where uh, it can mess you up. It's not always the easiest thing to do that sort of fine tuning uh, when you're in the middle of doing a lot of platforming. But this game expands a lot on the scope of Super Mario 64. If you remember from Super Mario 64, there are 120 stars that you got to collect throughout the game. And Mario Sunshine, they double that to 240 shines. If you want 100% the game, I think you only need 80-ish in order to actually finish the game. But it, it's very similar to Mario 64 where you have like your open zone. In Mario 64, it's the, the castle, Peach's castle. 
on a bunch of different uh, floors that you can go to. And then you have the paintings that you enter in Mario 64 to go to the actual level zones. And it works this the same. It's like the beach city and yeah, Delf- you're jumping into. Delfino Island. And you're basically just kind of going to different beachy locations. There's like an actual coast. There's a harbor. There's like an amusement park. So, you know, th- they don't like have the typical Mario zones that you think when you think of like a 2D platformer. There's no like, here's the ice zone and here's, you know, the, the, the volcano zone. Um, Here's the underwater level that everybody enjoys so much. Right, you know it's the worst part of platformers? <laughs> swimming. Let's have those in every game. Here's the game. sunken ship that you have to take an hour to swim down to. <laughs> you know, I don't remember if there's a sunken ship in Mario uh, Sunshine. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, there is in 64. <laughs> so there's, so there, there's not... Yeah, there sure is. There's not as many of those extra... Uh, of, the, of those zones, because in, in Mario 64, there's 15 different paintings that you can enter. And I think there's only five or six uh, different levels that you go into in uh, Mario Sunshine. There's a hotel. There's a haunted hotel, which is it's pretty fun. Um, but So what they're doing is they're packing a whole lot of objectives into a fewer number of zones and there's also like in your your main hub just like in mario 64 in your main hub there's also shines that you can get scattered throughout there but they they you know have collect all the red coins um they introduce blue coins which are timed challenges you got to find the graffiti in certain parts of the wall that you need to uh, clean off and then rush over to the next like matching graffiti and clean that off too within the time in order to expose the blue coin and the blue coin is just currency to buy more shines from a shop uh, throughout um, the the rest of the game and then the main hub. So there's there's a lot of that sort of busy work and it, it, it's kind of a, it, it feels a little bloated at times, especially when you're going around collecting all the blue coins. Uh, one of the things that they do that was smart with these blue coins is they allow you to save once you've collected one and then just continue playing that level. So if you remember from Mario 64, when you collect a star, it basically like kicks you out of the level and then you can save. But with um, in Mario Sunshine, it's the, the same concept when you collect a shine you leave but if you collect a blue coin it allow you to keep that progress so that you don't have to go doing the same challenges over and over again for those um and the, the reason in mario 64 and mario sunshine that it let, uh, makes you leave the level is because depending on the goal that it sets for you when you enter the level it will kind of change the way certain things work certain bosses will be around certain like platforms will have moved around different areas will be exposed that you can go into so they they haven't quite reached like the the sophistication of course of something like a mario odyssey which is just like no here's your big open area and everything you collect you just keep on going until you're done here which is uh, really the, the the best refinement of this sort of Mario formula that we've seen. Um, and really, the uh, the only other major point I wanted to hit on about Mario Sunshine is that there are parts of the game where you'll enter what's, what's ostensibly a two D platforming style area, and they'll take away your jetpack, your your flood pack from you, and 
So like, okay, you got to get from point A to point B, basically go reach the flagpole over there and do it without your flood pack. And there's all like the rotating geography and things like that. Some of the more like challenging platforming sections of the game are these parts where, you know, you don't get the jetpack to lean on. Um, they, they crafted some really interesting ones. But so pretty substantial game takes about 15 hours to work through like just the critical path in the game you can double that if you're looking to go for the 100 percent got really positive reviews at the time nines and tens goes on to sell 5.5 million across the lifespan of the gamecube so i think that puts it in the top five best-selling gamecube games what do you guys think i see here yeah i see here that it a lot of people said that this is considered a difficult game, which is kind of funny. You don't really think of Mario games as being particularly difficult. Yeah. Is, is that true from your experience with it? Is this like substantially harder in terms of just like you I, know, I found the this game pretty tricky, especially some of the levels where you're primarily using the flood as kind of like a way to surf around. Because hmm. um, at certain points, I just I couldn't turn quick enough. Like I just couldn't figure out how to platform. Efficiently, I don't really know what to say when it comes to water like that, but there was a couple of those water levels that I was struggling with. Yeah, I think that it's probably one of the more demanding Mario games in terms of platforming. I think the the most difficult things are when you're going for that 100% and doing like the extra challenges. Uh, if you're just like um, trying to get to the end of the game, like minimal shines, there there's enough in there. There's enough easy stuff in there to where you can sort of like curate your own experience. Okay, this one's too hard. I'll just go get a different one. Gotcha. Oh, so the game retailed for 50 bucks as most GameCube games did back then. What do you guys think a used copy goes for? Disc only, over under 50 bucks. Let's copy <laughs> over in this situation. Well, you know, it's difficult to say because it's one of the five best selling ones, but it's also Mario. So typically Mario games are in a slightly higher demand. They also came out with that All-Star collection. So it's not like it's at this I'll point say, it's hard to get because they don't they, that was a limited release run. Yeah, I'll say I'll say under. It is under. Oh. A used disc for this one run about 30 bucks. And like you were saying Wes, it does get the re-release on Switch in that 3D All-Stars collection uh released alongside Mario 64 and Mario Galaxy 1. Um and like you said, a limited time release, which is absolute madness. Yeah, uh, that that they did. Like, uh, if they were doing just like a limited physical release, I mean, okay. But to have it like release on the eShop and then like remove it from the eShop, lunacy! I, what are you just, doing? They're just throwing away money. They're like, we could make some more money, but I we're, think we're good right now. I mean, what what do you think the over under would be? Like, how many switches they've sold since that got delisted? You know, I, I bet they've sold like twenty five or thirty million more switches since they stopped selling that Mario collection. And that's I mean, it could be like you don't know Takashi Tezuka. Maybe he just has like a box of a hundred copies of them, and he's like, <laughs> I got to get these things out the door. <laughs> so we're gonna pull the digital only. <laughs> Until I can get these out on eBay. Well, it was, I wonder it was, how much one of those copies go for nowadays. 120 bucks. Really? For the for the All-Star game? Yep. 120 yeah. I did the research. 120 bucks. Yeah, give it time. It'll go up. Yeah. That's fitting, because it's almost one-third of 
like that's almost three times the cost of getting the original version <laughs> so unless you priced out 64 in galaxy i'm interested to know uh, i bet you can get mario 64 for like 20 bucks in mario galaxy i don't know I don't know what those would go for now. But, um, all right, we're going to rank it. Here we go. So um, I, I think uh, goes without saying this is probably going to be a top 10 GameCube nope. game. Nope. Currently what we have. I think it's above Luigi's Mansion. Do you guys think uh, Pikmin is number five right now? I think it goes above or below Pikmin? Above Pikmin. Above yeah. Pikmin? I mean, I really like Pikmin. But I think you guys, sure. I, I think you guys are right. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, like, really? Okay. Above or below Eternal Darkness, which is number never, three game right now. I never play Eternal. I can't say. I think it's kind of wild that that one sits at three, yeah. but it is such a unique. Game. I mean, we I are still think we are very early in the GameCube life cycle. Yeah, I would put it above that. Yeah. but I know what your number two and your number one are, and I would not put it above those. What was number two? I can't remember. The Resident Evil remake. And it's, yeah. it's it's a really really good remake, and I think it's it's yeah. so much more replayable than Mario Sunshine. Like, Mario Sunshine, if you want to go through all of it, it's exhausting. Um, so we're thinking number three? Number three GameCube game? I think it feels right at three. Works yeah, for me. Uh, Ryan, did you have any games that you wanted to bring up? Uh, one game. Just just one game to talk about. You, well, I mean, are we not going to talk about uh, Duke Nukem Advance? I did not research it a whole lot. I do have that one. Uh, I, I've <laughs> a couple of notes on that. Uh, really the only Game Boy Advance game of any sort of note that released this month. Uh, it was developed by a company called Taurus Games and published by Take-Two. I had no idea that Take-Two published Duke Nukem, but here it is. Um, Taurus Games mostly does dev support unlicensed games, How to Train Your Dragon, Barbie, that kind of fare. Um, it is a shooter as you expect from a duke nukem game it uses the same engine as uh, a duke nukem for pc but is a, a new game i kind of like the, the doom 64 scenario where they made a new doom game using doom assets but it's like a, a new experience so it l looks like previous iterations but it is actually a new game um you're an obnoxious guy who runs around with big guns End of explanation. It is. It is the original, at least, is a classic of the whole retro first-person shooter mm. scene. It is. It is iconic. Duke Nukem has probably faded a bit in the past. I don't know, fifteen years or so. But there was a while there where he was probably one of the most recognizable faces in video games. Yeah, it was very like, uh, uh, very much of its time, a sort of a, a character in a franchise because it is very bombastic. Uh, very extreme, and that's what the the, the character and the, the games really leaned into. And there, th oh yeah, he is, he is dripping with what we would now nowadays call toxic masculinity. Uh -huh. <laughs> <I think. laughs> um, but yeah, it, there's a, there's a char there is kind of a, a dirt bag charm to it. I think in a way. Hmm. All right, what did you have? Um, oh yeah, uh, what, what was it? Uh, the EA Sports title. Oh. Uh, the the new NFL game had just come out, Madden two thousand. Which one? Four football games came out in August of two thousand two. Like you said, I saw that Madden, NFL two K three, NFL Game Day, NFL Blitz twenty dash oh three. Yeah, but I mean, I think that. Well, one, I'm not surprised 
when looking at this, at the sales numbers, um, this is going to be the second best-selling game in the U.S. this year, mm-hmm. um, fourth best in, worldwide, and nobody gives a shit about football anywhere but America. Right. So that said something. Uh, the sales were absolutely insane. And believe it or not, according to Metacritic, this was the fifth best rated game mm. to across all consoles. This was the number five critically reviewed game of the year. It was fucking mad. There was a time where uh, Madden, there's a reason it was the premier football game to, to release on, on consoles. Uh, it's because they, they put a lot of effort into like making these really well-crafted football experiences. Um when we get to, I think it was like 2005 or 2006, EA will just buy out the NFL license so no one else can make football games. And, you know, may, maybe it's um, uh, cynicism when it comes to people reviewing Madden games or maybe the the Madden brand or formula has gotten a little stale, but they won't review as well as they do in this like PS2 GameCube era of football sports games. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, you know, it's not really directly about the game that they're making. Granted, it's an, it's an iterative game, so people simply just don't like the fact that they've got to like pony up sixty bucks mm. every year to just sort of keep up with this like, for for a roster. Why not just yeah, yeah, essentially. But hey, you know, then they just basically stop making the game at that mm. point. You know, like at that point, it's just like there's yeah, you make one per not per in, platform. Yeah, they're not, and then they're not even making any improvements. Yeah, and you know, it'd be it'd be interesting to see. Uh, how they could uh, approach that because that's that's what uh, I used to what, when I cared about sports games which was a long time back. That's what I used to say they should do, like just make a sports game for the you know GameCube or the the, the PS2, or at that time it'd be like the the Wii and the PS3 era, and then just do roster updates and feature updates if you want to add more to it, and just like charge people ten bucks. And I wonder what the math would be like. What what's the cost of like developing a brand new game? And what return on well, that would be a that would be a cut in eighty three percent of their revenue. <laughs> They're not going to do that. But does it? They want do, sixty bucks a year. However, you want to pay sixty bucks a year. But but it does they'll, do they'll you do. make up for that loss in revenue with not having the development cost of having to make a brand new game? I don't know. Maybe maybe you maybe you don't make that up. Oh, well, so EA Tiburon makes it and. Interestingly enough, they're actually based out of Orlando, Florida. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like what John wants to do is unemploy a lot of people in his community. Yeah, people that I know, my friends. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't, playing, I don't care I'm what they do with Matt or now. Advocate. I don't care what they do with yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sounding like the devil's advocate here. You are right. I, I don't think it justifies having an annual release like this when they could skip a year. And, and Lord knows what, what they would make in terms of a better game. Mm. For having done so but again this thing's kind of on on rails they got to keep it moving mm. oh and, and just back to this point like i think it's yeah this is bonkers this is a top five seller top five reviewer yeah. i mean this ha- this has to be in the argument for second best game of the year like it's kind of wild it's got to beat resident evil oh i wasn't gonna put resident evil number one. Oh, how dare you i mean for for, for all of gaming for all of how all of everything. dare you Oh, Metroid Prime comes out in 2002. Uh, I don't, there might be one more, one other game out there that's a little bigger. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's not an Nintendo. How game. dare you? Until until the year 2021, it's not. <laughs> <game>. <laughs> um, you got any other games, Ryan? I got a couple more. Oh no, go ahead. Let's hear a couple more. Yeah, uh, Wes, tell me about Ani Musha. Ani Musha. Do you remember this game? 
Onimusha 2 Samurai's See? Destiny. It's a Capcom game, like uh, hack and slash sort of thing. I thought you had played this one back in the day. No, I did not play this one back in the day. No, this was um, this was a, a series that Capcom did. It was a hack and slash, but it like had Resident Evil style like presentation and locomotion, where you're like moving like like tank controls kind of thing. At least in in this version of the game, I think in future versions, uh, they they changed up the way they were presenting it. Um, it's a series that died off after like the PS2 GameCube generation. I think the 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 last major release was in 2006. There was one game that came out in 2012, and then they did a remaster of the one of them on 20 in 2018, and it's out on Switch. You can buy an Animusha game on Switch, but it's um a, a hack and slash game that gets totally eclipsed by Devil May Cry, which is Capcom's other action game. I don't think very many people miss it. I don't have too much else to say. It reviewed all right. Like eights, that kind of thing. Um, and then the other PS2 game that I wanted to at least mention, uh, SOCOM US Navy SEALs. This was Sony's in-house first party tactical shooter. It had online play. Pretty impressive for uh, early-ish PS2 game. You need to have like the HDD edition in order to play and like the, the headset and everything, but like four-player cooperative and competitive tactical shooting uh and this this franchise was like a big deal for about five or six years there were 10 games in the socom franchise across the ps2 ps3 and ps3 um the last one was socom 4 on ps3 and it just seems like a lot of people got bored with this series sony seems to have a hard time maintaining any sort of like first party first person shooter uh for any length of time i think uh it was I think I think they at one point they tried to replace SOCOM with Killzone. Killzone more of like a, an action first person shooter rather than a tactical one. But like Kills, Killzones, Killzones were pretty good. Yeah, but that that's another one where like uh, I think they had a couple on there. There was one on PS2, maybe one or two on PS3. But then when they transitioned to the PS4, they just couldn't get it to stick. Um, and I think think they're trying to like have Resistance be the next like first person. Uh, first party Sony PSR shooter, but I get that that one didn't really go anywhere either. There's, I don't know for for whatever reason they just can't uh, get their Halo killer to stick. But I think that's all I had for video gaming this time around. Should we move over to music? I think it was yeah, good. That was quite a month, by the yeah. way. Yeah, I think we had a pretty good month there for games. Yeah, pretty not not too bad at all. Not too bad at all. Got a, a couple of really good um, GameCube games and, you know, Duke Nukem. <laughs> but it, I don't don't feel bad for the Game Boy Advance. September for the Game Boy Advance is a killer month. Yeah. And there also was Beach Spikers. You didn't talk about Beach Oh, Spikers. shit, we missed Beach Spikers. Damn it. Yeah. We'll cool. circle back to that one. Mm-hmm. All right. What, what do you want to do next, movies or music? Uh, we typically do music. We can go ahead and get that get that out of the way. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. This is this is a very busy month. I literally, as I was going through this, I just started deleting a couple of albums. Where I'm like, it's. I, I feel like we spent so much time between recording last month and there wasn't a lot of music that we're like one week less in August, <laughs> and there was like twice as much music. So I tried to cram a lot of this in. Wait, no. Did did you like totally delete them? 
Because we like if if you want to yeah. like just do like a a, a, a lightning round where you just say the name of an album that came out and then just leave it at that if you wanted to. Uh, Benga's Meme Tunes was a really good ambient techno album. People should listen to. Okay, there you go. That's one that <laughs> made the cutting room floor. Frankly, um, yeah, I know you. You said you listened to some records too. So, I listened to six. Um, that's a lot for you. That's that's. That, it, that, that's that, I think that's my high watermark at this point. Yeah. Uh, you want me to just go through in order, or do you, how, how do you want to do no, this? No, go ahead and go through, and I'll chime in when there's. Aside from making okay. snide comments, I'll chime in when I have something to contribute as well. I'll, I'll chime in when uh, you say a band's name that I'm like, what on earth are they thinking? Coldplay. Yeah. <laughs> what on earth are they thinking? Yeah. So my number one that I have listed is um, Interpol's Turn on the Bright. I listened to that one. Yeah. Um, so this is a quick hit on this. This is the number one album of the month for the Album of the Year website. This is going to make the short list of best albums of the year, in my personal opinion. I absolutely love this record. Um, they were a New York-based, uh, sort of post-punk shoegaze band. Um, they are very evocative of a band that people worship called Joy Division, even though the Joy Division didn't really accomplish much, and their singer killed himself. Oh, shit. There is sort of a mythos around the band. And this, this group really captures a lot of what made that band great they reminded me a lot um, of like the like mid 70s early 80s punk like the ramones specifically kind of like ramones cross a little bit of white stripes yeah yeah i can hear that for sure um i think that it's yeah they're they're incorporating a lot of that they're incorporating joy division uh, susie and the banshees a, a group called my bloody valentine um i think the thing that for me personally that i love so much about it is the way that they treat the rhythm guitar as an actual rhythm guitar it's there to sort of keep the tempo and it allows for the bassist to just have some of the most amazing flourishes as bass lines go it's really really tight music um and very very catchy far catchier than it deserves to be for as dreary as a lot of the music sounds um you know and there's just some absolutely amazing tracks on here obstacle one nyc PDA and that track called Leif Erikson. Stella was a diver and she was always down. Say hello to the angels. It, yeah, say hello to the angels. Infamously, like Stella was a diver, they never played that song live. They just refused to play it live and no idea why. But hmm. they just won't play it live. Um, and it's not like it's a hard song to play. They just they just choose not to, and everybody wonders why. Everyone wants to know why they don't play. This I would song. definitely. Uh, they just they just did. It like, wasn't part of a set list, and then like it became a thing. Like people wondered why they never played it, and then like maybe we should just not play it ever. I you, I think you may be right about that. Honestly, I think that they kind of love that there is this sort of um, needless uh, interrogation of their music. <laughs> uh, and probably my favorite track on the album is this one called Roland. Mm. Um, Roland's is like the perfect melding of everything this band does as a group. Um, yeah, yeah, like this is a great, great, great record. Um, did you have any more thoughts on it? Um, not, uh, not really. Impressive debut studio album. Pretty good. I listened to most of it while driving. Good driving music. Yeah, it was uh, it was a good listen. Yeah. In a couple of years, they're going to have another album out, come out called Antics, and I think Antics is a very good record too. Maybe not as good as this one, because um, it's really hard to top this one. But Antics is also, you know, th- this is a band that's going to keep making records, and they're going to do a good job of it with each one. Uh, next, I got is Queens of the Stone Age. They have an album called Songs. For the I listen to this one too. Okay, what, what's your take here? 
I, it was all right. Kind of a, a rock music, a little bit of a funk twist at times. Um, probably the the song that everyone knows off of this one was No One Knows. Uh, also, Go With The Flow, First It Giveth, or probably the, the, the bigger ones. Uh, for me, the big stand, standout was Six Shooter, which is like right in the yeah. middle of the album. And it's the, the shortest song by like two minutes. And it's just like this really fast song where the singer just screeches at you. And it's like the only time I like I stopped. I was like, whoa, this is, what, what are they doing here? This is kind of interesting. Um, um, well, yeah. Like, over- yeah, it's kind of out of bounds for them. Because like, yeah, if you think about it, that, that big hit track when there no one knows is like loungy mm-hmm. practically. It's like kind of like you're saying, kind of a, a funk sound yeah. to it. But yeah. Um, they, they do this. You know, this is a... They they, they, go ahead. they they do this. Um, overall, I, I thought it was pretty good, but uh, they do this like dumb throughout the album. These these dumb like radio station identifications between some of the tracks, and when they like cut, it's like, okay, yeah. come on, guys, just we're we're not here to tell jokes. Let's just move forward. They're yeah, they're practically like hip hop skits. Mm. You know, hip hop albums do that a lot, where they'll have some a bunch of just random ass skits to break up an album, and it's like, why do you guys do this? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of so pointless. But yeah, they, they do that here. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a band following up an album that we talked about real, not that long ago, maybe two years ago. They had R-rated and we were covering this album when it came out when we did that podcast. Um, yeah, and it's got this guy, Josh Holm, in it. And we talked briefly about Josh Holm. He's their singer and guitarist. And he is just kind of a dirtbag. Um, you know, he was the one that was is, is divorced from Brody Dale, who is the ex-wife of... The singer of Rancid, Tim Armstrong. It's very weird. Very weird. What a tangled uh, web. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's there's just a lot of you know, you know if, if you were to look up his Wikipedia page, you would just see like a laundry list of things that make you not like the guy. Uh, but he's not the only one in the band. There's other guys in the band who probably aren't dirtbags. And yeah, I think it's it's a good enough record. I just personally uh, have kind of bristle at this group. Moving on, the band you were going to lead off with, Coldplay. Oh yeah, <laughs> there they Coldplay are. Coldplay releases a "Rush of Blood to the Head." I, I don't understand They're... the name Coldplay. Like, are, are you playing in winter? Like, I don't. I just, it's, 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 well, it's, it's probably a British is... thing. I, I don't understand it. Yeah. Are they going to the ice skating rink? Like, I don't. I, I, I don't. Get yeah, it. that very well may be the case. Um, you know. It's fine. I'm it's not clever. It's fine. Move on. <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing great. I hate you both. You're doing great. Why am I here? You're doing great. I'm going to log off. I'm going to go, guys. No, 10 out of 10. You're yeah, fine. I'm, no notes. I, I, I'm going to go. Well, so, so they're following up their debut record, Parachutes, which was a huge deal when it mm-hmm. came out. And it came out not even that long ago. It came out maybe a year and a half ago. Again, another record we talked about when it came out. Um, I, I do like this band a lot. I think that Parachutes is a better album than this, but this one's probably got the better singles. It's got In My Place, Scientist, Clocks. Yeah, Clocks uh, is probably the most recognizable song from uh, from this yeah. album. I, I like The Scientist. That was a good track. Mm-hmm. Sold 12 million copies. Mm. Uh, that is a, the bonkers sales numbers. And, of course, a lot of that is coming from – this is very much a U.K focused band so a lot of the sales get derived as one of the best selling UK records um, but yeah all in all it's very well produced again it, like when they're when you listen to their, their first album parachutes it's very evocative of what Radiohead had started doing but then moved away from as they became a band and you can see here Coldplay is really embracing being essentially a pop band a very 
pristine, polished uh, pop group. Um, just kind of making making some some love songs, frankly, if, if, if that's what we're going to boil down their tunes to, I think. It's good. Yeah, I actually really do enjoy this record. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like a easy listen to. Um, I, I don't. Um, it, it's not my favorite style of music, but it's inoffensive. Yeah. Um. Next, we got Bright Eyes. The band Bright Eyes releases recent. There's a long title called "Lifted" or "The Story in the Soil." Keep your ear to the. Ground. How does a mouthful? Yeah, it's this guy Connor Oberst. We've talked about him a bunch of times already because he's just con- he's very prolific and he's always releasing music. Um, I only bring it up because it was pretty highly rated for the month, but I don't think this is a great record for him. He's from Nebraska and makes folk music, essentially. The best thing that we've talked about that he's done so far was not under the moniker Bright Eyes. It was as uh, that group, uh, Desperacitos. He made an emo record with a bunch of other guys that were big in the emo scene. I really like that one a lot. This, this one, I tried to give it a chance. I'm not saying it's bad. It just it wasn't for me. I didn't like it. Uh, next, we got Spoon, Kill the Moonlight. This is a Texas indie rock outfit. Again, another group we talked about before. They, they've been prole- releasing albums rather prolifically over the past few years. And it's kind of a mix of Motown and Power Pop. Uh, good, but again, this is just another one to check off the list. I feel like I should mention a lot of these just because they were so, uh, so highly rated. Um, 30 Seconds to Mars. Did you listen to this one? I did days? not. Okay. No, but uh, thirty uh, again, like a, a, a lot of familiar tracks on this one. I did look it up. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, kind of the hook around this band is centered around uh, the fact that Jared Leto is is the singer and guitarist of the group. Yeah, of uh, Fight Club uh, fame, Jared Leto. Yeah, yeah. And hey, hey, we, didn't we just watch him in um, Panic Room? As well? Yes. Yeah, he was also in Panic Room a few months prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what about this record? It's sort of a high concept sci-fi progressive rock album. I think that it's uh, sort of the better of uh, a group like Angels and Airwaves, but you know, I, I don't necessarily. I, I think that it's interesting that it comes out alongside Coheed and Cambria, because mm. Coheed and Cambria's debut record was not nearly as polished, but I think it's better as a progressive rock album. Um, that said, this is still really, really good, very enjoyable. It's very pristinely produced, and I actually kind of love the fact that. This could have so easily been a new metal record and wasn't. I love that they stayed away from the most prevalent sound in rock music. Um, and just kind of made something unique. Made, again, focused more on prog rock than they did on trying to make it a metal record. Yeah, stayed away from like the corn or Limp Bizkit sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. again, everybody was doing it at the time. It was. It seemed like an easy way to make a band popular was just trying to throw that aesthetic in and they ditched it entirely which is cool not to say that they had any interest in it in the first place but like i mean uh, the you actually get um james mater keys providing guest vocals on one of the tracks and he, he's the singer for tool one of the biggest prog rock bands of the era so nice to see that um moving on we have at the time called the dixie chicks now they just go by the chicks yep. they released an album called home did you give this one a listen by a chance? I did not. Was this the one where they kind of fell out of grace with the the, the country music crowd because they were critical of George Bush? Uh, it would be, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. They, they... Oh, Wes, were you going to say something, Wes? Okay. What? <laughs> well, Wesley, there was this thing called 9-11. We talked about that. Yeah. But, you know, the... Yeah, no, no. The, the, so the Dixie Chicks, yeah, you're, you're right. that This is, they are a band that kind of swirls in controversy. 
because basically, you know that expression, um, like the lady doth protest too mm. much. If there was any one band that you could center that phrase around, it's undeservedly the Dixie Chicks. You know, they're just they're they're country musicians making very traditional sounding country music, but they're also feminists and they're anti-war. Uh, they're against bigotry they're for lgbt rights they're they're progressive in their politics which offends so many in spite of the fact that this is if you liked country music you would love what they do as a band Mm. um so it's it's really unfortunate and it just reeks of misogyny when you look back at how they were treated as a group simply for having opinions Mm -hmm. you know they had every right to hate george bush because george bush was a piece of shit yeah not not a good guy yeah, yeah. Not a good talker either. <laughs> what was that one? Sorry. Not a good talker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, also a very terrible uh, consumer of uh, pretzels. <laughs> Struggles with <laughs> was, was this. But was this the album where uh, with the, the, the Earl song, Earl Had to Die? No, that was on the album oh, okay. prior to this Fly Away, I think mm. it was. Um, and yeah, that record sold millions of copies. This record's going to sell millions of copies too. Um, but it, this, this is the big singles on this one were "Landslide" and "Traveling Soldier." Um, you know, "Traveling Soldier" is again one of those songs that, you know, it sounds like it's very patriotic America, but it's basically about a guy who goes off and dies in the Vietnam War. Did they cover "Landslide"? Is that they're doing a cover of the Stevie Nicks? Or was it? I don't know if that was originally a Stevie Nicks song. Actually, I'm gonna, maybe it was a. Cover. I'm going to do some fact checking. Go ahead. I'm, I have got to confess, I am not that big a fan of Stevie Nicks. <laughs> so, yeah, Fleetwood. It very well may have Yeah, played. Fleetwood Mac did it originally. Okay, yeah. Also, uh, Top of the World, Top of the World, I believe, was a song about the September 11th attacks. Mm. Um, so all those were big songs. And yeah, like uh, this whole era is just seemingly so f- overloaded with controversy around this group that seems, when you look back on it, so uncontroversial. Right. But yeah, and again, if you like traditional, if if you listen to the what's what's on your modern top forty country station right now and think that it sounds like bullshit, like the Dixie Chicks were the band that is what you think country music should be. Um, so, so there's that 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 happened. Um, another album to to, to move on. Um, you have Carissa's Weird, and that's that's weird. Like I think W I E R D, like a like a locket or like a necklace or something, a magical necklace. There's the name of the group, and the album is called Songs About Leaving. I only this was again. This was a top eight record on Album of the Year, a band that I had never heard of, and an album I had certainly not listened to. Uh, it fits neatly into a category called slowcore, which is again your very niche genre, of very as you can imagine slow detailed rock music i guess um it was good but a lot of these slowcore albums they really need multiple lessons to kind of break down whether or not you're even supposed to like it it's, it's a it's a music that really takes multiple listens to figure out and at a glance it was okay but I, I can't really there's too much music too much music this month um now we have your boy james taylor oh yes october road October Road. Do you get this one? I, well, yes and no. Uh, I think I've made it like six or seven tracks. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard enough. Um, first, we well established. Out of on how the, many tracks though? Uh, ten or twelve. You might as well right. just tough it out. Well, I, was, I think it was. A, I think it was twelve. I, I was listening to it like in the car driving, uh, driving right, to work. Right, right. 
So I, okay. I, I felt no need to go back to the rest of it. But, um, you know, I, I didn't have much expectations. It's, it's like soft folk music, I suppose. It, it doesn't do anything for me. I mean, it's well established on this podcast that James Taylor shreds. He does. But, you know, it's... um. I, I think like the guitar doesn't catch fire. Yeah, if 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 you, <laughs> if you know what James Taylor is going in, like I don't think this is blowing anyone's expectations away. This is what you think it is. I had what I feel like is a pretty catty comment about it oh, when I was writing please. my notes because I just didn't know what to say. And I wrote that, and I was trying to be nice, but I was like, it's very warm and gentle production of coffee shop jazz folk boomer love songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like Raffy without the energy. <laughs> What bothered me, though, is when I, because I, I started listening to the album track by track, and the first track, September Grass. Second song, October Road. Third track, Fourth of July. No, no. I thought this was going to be a 12-song cycle with each song about a different Wouldn't that one. be interesting? What a missed opportunity. None, none of the other tracks are about the months of the Nothing year. Nothing about spring? They didn't even break down by seasons or anything? No, he didn't even. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah, he wrote. He writes kind of like you know. Yeah, this is a jolly timing December. Mm. <laughs> this yeah, this just feels like um, December romance love songs. I a, guess you could say a new path in July in January. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> like come on, we could do this. <laughs> <laughs> he could have. He could have. I don't know. He also noticed that he's wearing a hat because as, as he is at this point extremely bald. <laughs> uh, a man. That was very handsome back in his day. Uh, now not having any hair. But hey, so but he, hey, nice but he shreds. You don't need hair if you shred. No, he really does. No. Hey, what's on the cover? Him working an acoustic mm-hmm. guitar. John, when was the last time you played your guitar? <laughs> Ten years. <clears throat> that used to be so good. I don't know why you yeah, stopped. Yeah, I was all right. Well, I, I stopped because I had to get a job and pay bills. Yeah, you got you got a wife. You're like, I don't need this anymore. He's like, <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need to impress anybody. Get this out of here. No, I, I, I got a contract. She's not going anywhere. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, let's let's move on. We, we got a lot more albums to get through. Oh, let's just keep going. Uh, so onto the hip hop and R and B category. Uh, a duo called Dalek or Dalek, D L D A L E K. It's like that thing. I've never watched Doctor. Oh yeah, a Dalek. Like a thing is Doctor it Doctor Who, Who themed? Is this a Doctor Not Who really. hip hop album? Oh, man, oh. I totally would just immediately start playing. I know, it. right? The podcast would be <laughs> over. While we're recording. Yeah, like I'll be right back, guys. Put a pause on this. <laughs> I mean, maybe there the albums that the, this album is very lyrically dense. So for all I know, there may be tons and tons of references to Doctor Who that I just did not pick up on. Um, but the album is called. Um, from Filthy Tongues of Gods and Griots. I like uh, that. Been, yeah. Um, a griot, by the way, is apparently a, um, what would you say, a, a traveling poet. Um, that's just a, a term that's used for like a traveling poet. I had to look that up. I had no idea what the fuck a griot was. Sounds like something from like Canterbury um, Tales rate, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like kind of a, some ar- archaic terminology they're using. Um, this is an interesting record, though, because it's... It, while it is a hip-hop record, um, it is also equal parts industrial. Um, not very common to hear an industrial album mixing in what essentially would be like underground hip-hop. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting record. It's got a lot of these kind of dirty and grimy kind of soundscapes that you'd imagine from industrial. And again, not metal. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of like actual like metal music in it. It just mostly feels like it's using industrial electronic. 
Um, we talked about a group called Jedi Mind Tricks. It reminds me a bit of Jedi Mind Tricks. And I also think that it's actually pretty influential for artists today. Um, there's a group called Death Grips and another called Clipping. They're actually really, really big right now um, that do the same thing effectively. Are They're very influenced by industrial music, but then mixing it in with what would be traditional hip-hop or underground hip-hop. I like it. Pretty good. Um, Clips uh, released an album called Lord Willing. I love Clips. This is one of my favorite hip-hop groups. Um, and this is a great, great record they made. This is their debut. It's these two guys, Pusha T and Malice, and they're working with Neptunes. So yeah, I brought I've brought up Neptunes virtually every month for the past two years because they're probably the hottest production duo going right now um, in hip hop, R and B, and pop music. Um, Neptunes are incredible, and they produce this whole fucking album. The entire like normally they'll just do like one or two tracks on different artists' albums, and they'll oftentimes be the biggest tracks on those albums. But they produce the whole album here. Um, and it's great because it's got kind of their unconventional they, they have a way of working in pop elements into their production without sacrificing the kind of you know grit that you'd expect from hip-hop um, and the lyrical content is pretty much exclusively hype rhymes which i love there's nothing better like hype rhymes is like an 80s thing practically like you don't hear a lot of mcs doing it now where basically all they do is talk themselves up and come up with clever wordplay um, and they do a fantastic job of it so uh, just a really enjoyable, great production, you know, great delivery from both MCs, delivering really fun and intricate wordplay. Really, really nice. If you want some tracks, I would say Grindin' and um, When the Last Time. Great, great songs. It was also, for a hip-hop record, thank fucking God, 45 minutes long. Most hip-hop records are 70 minutes, mm. just because they can. They made a nice, crisp, clean record. I know there's no skits. There's none of that nonsense. It's just a bunch of really good tracks. Um, I would absolutely recommend people listen to this album. It's so good. Also, you have Scarface releasing The Fix. If you don't know who Scarface is, he's been around since the 80s. Uh, he, he broke out with a group called The Ghetto Boys from Houston in the early 90s. Um, a lot of people don't go back and listen to 90s hip-hop. And if they do, they're probably going back to listen to like you know Biggie and Tupac, the the most obvious recognizable artists in hip hop at the time. Um, the ghetto boys is one of the best groups of this era though. And most uh, people probably recognize at least one or two of those songs. Like, uh, it feels good to be a gangster. If you play this, I'm like, most people probably yeah. know what that is. True. Um, and yeah, so this is kind of a, this is Scarface kind of breaking out on his own. He's been making records again on his own too now for many, many years, but, uh, this is a, a fantastic record as well great collection of uh not only guest vocals but producers as well jay-z beanie seagull and nas are all on here which is kind of funny because jay-z and nas are like beefing really hard at this time they hate each other so it's funny that they're both guest tracks on the same record you also get production credits again from neptunes it wasn't enough that they just made this album with clips they've also got a track on here and get this kanye west hmm. there this he is, is again i think yeah this is really when kanye west is starting to make a name for himself in, in production and he produces a track on here called Guess Who's Back. One of the best tracks of the month. It is an incredible song. This is also the one that features Jay-Z. Jay-Z and Kanye have been working together a lot at this time. He produced a bunch of the tracks on the Blueprint. So not a shocker to see him there. Other tracks, On My Block and In Between Us, I really like. Again, 40 minutes. This is a short record. This is a really nice... Like 
you could combine Clips Lord Willen and Scarface the Fix and you get your average like freaking record from Fabulous or something. You know, it's it's really, really nice to see these two albums focused on just giving you good songs, you know, like kind of all killer, no filler. All right, um, I'll move on to punk the punk scene. You got uh, Sparta releasing Wiretap Scars. Real quick hit on these guys. This is the other half of At The Drive-In. At The Drive-In was a band that broke up. Um, I like this side of the duo a little better uh, than I like Mars Volta. Um, it's a good mix of sort of post-hardcore stuff. There's a song called Cut Your Ribbons. Also, Air and Collapse are really good songs. The Closer is called Assemble the Empire. Great, great song. Um... Gosh, I feel like I need to take a break here. I've just been doing so much. <laughs> Do you want to chime in with one? Uh, listen, I, I, have we already talked I about I think like within this sort of a uh, punk vein, uh, I listened to Slater Kenny, One Beat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was a really interesting, yeah, like, like uh, I mean, kind of more like grungy than punk, but really interesting. I, I thought there, there are a couple of fun tracks, like uh, O, uh, O-H exclamation point was one of the tracks. That was like a, a fun, like more like a bubblegum pop track. It had a lot of bounce to it. Uh, funeral song was an interesting one. It had like a, a more like uh, steady sort of like droning, like uh, kick drums, um, uh, more more of like a gothic sound to it. Uh, yeah, the, uh, a really like a nice array of different types of song styles rather than just like the same things over and over again. Uh, I was pretty impressed by that one. Um, probably one of my my favorite listen. Uh, the the lead vocalist. This is. Um, a group of uh, two or three main ladies who perform in this band. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. the, the lead singer has, has a lot of uh, vibrato in her voice. I think if you're being mean, you'd say she sounds like a goat. Uh, she does not stop saying that. That's mean. Uh, I, I think like if, if, uh, if, if you're sensitive to that sort of thing, you might not like her voice, but I thought this was a fun album. Oh yeah, I think it's funny that you brought up the singer of Fleetwood Mac, and then you're calling someone else right, sounding like a right. goat. <laughs> Stevie Nicks, famously a sheep. She's just an actual sheep. As I recall, um, uh, you know, I can't even. Is it Fred Armisen? I think that one of the women is and has been in a long-standing relationship with How's Fred that Armisen. True? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I just looked up some quick information. I don't know much about this band, but apparently they, they'll have they they've been around since like the mid 90s and then i think around 2006 they'll go on hiatus or something until about 2013 and then like the, the main two get back together mm-hmm. yeah sounds about right i mean i, I know that they're they're big in the whole like riot girl scene mm. like uh female focused punk music they're from my uh, either portland or seattle i might just be thinking portland because because of, of fred armor because of fred armison <laughs> yeah but um i know that they're you know, they're from the northeast they're very popular up there and, oh, and the, yeah, like two I've, bonus tracks. Two bonus tracks on this this album. Really? Yeah, what a blast in the past. Exactly. Remember bonus tracks, everybody? Jeez. God, that is, we, we have to wait like five minutes in dead silence to unlock the bonus. Right, you, you thought the disc was done and then all of a sudden like they start playing again? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you don't be great on our album, Dead Air. <laughs> <laughs> well, some bands, it is an improvement. Oh, you, we're not talking about Creed yet. Maybe it's like a studio requirement where they had to produce at least X number of minutes of music and they're just like, uh, in case we don't cover it for the next album, <laughs> let's just go ahead and... 
All right, uh, one more punk album to talk about. Uh, the band Minus the Bear. I love these these guys. Um, I, these guys are also from Seattle. Um, they're kind of just getting there going. They, they made an EP called uh, uh, Bands Like It When You Yell Yar at Them. It's a very, okay. They, they have a lot of weird song titles and album titles. They're, that's one of their little gimmicks as a group. Um, but it's sort of a mixture of math rock and emo. I think that they uh, are just elegantly cool in all of the music they make. They sort of sing about this lifestyle that I'm sure that they don't live, which is like about fine wine and yachts and stuff like that. It's kind of funny when you look at the lyrical content and see who these guys really are, that this is what they choose to write about. But they, yeah, their songs are just like silky smooth. They do a lot of guitar tapping. Um, so it's not so much like strumming and open chords as much as it is like this intricate you know fret work that they're doing makes a just really distinct sound it's hard to describe but i think you really got to give them a listen and if you wanted to give them a listen two of the best songs they ever made are on the cp one's called sprit spritz and the other is women we haven't met yet both really really good i also personally like a song called i lost all my money at the cockfights um it's just again it's it's i know they have weird song titles this is what they do um, <laughs> but yeah i lost my money at the cockfights good tune it's it's more of a sprawling instrumental track it's maybe like six minutes long and there's only like a minute of actual I, I, singing on it titles are things that happen to them like... <laughs> very melt well maybe they have one called absinthe party at the fly warehouse oh yeah, yeah that's <laughs> oh, yeah based yeah, on a true story mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah All right, did you um... listen to the drones no, I, I listened to one of that. And I think they, they kind of fell in the more punk category. Here come the lies. I just listened to that one on the way home today. I don't have too much to say about it. It's noisy. There's a lot of like really screechy feedback through a lot of their songs. Um, yeah, I, 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 you could say they just drone on. You stop it. You stop it right now. <laughs> uh, I didn't particularly like it, but I might not have been in the right headspace to to, to listen to it. So I don't want to pass too harsh a judgment. You know, I, I, I can tell you, I didn't really listen to this album either. I know the band by name, but I don't really think I've ever actually sat down and listened to them either, so I don't really know. Um, but yeah, again, this is just a sign that the month was just mm. so overloaded with music. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of insane. Mm-hmm. I've only got a few more to go, though, so we're kind of getting... Lightning round, here we go. Okay, uh, electronic music, you have Sasha. Um, most, most notably associated with Sasha and Digweed. Um, he is like a, a trance producer uh, leading up to this. And then he makes this album called Air Drawn Dagger, um, which instead of it being that sort of high energy trance music meant for clubs and stuff, he made a much more of like a, um, a refined soundscape focused record. Um, very beautiful, tons of just gorgeous melodies, and it's still got a nice steady beat to it. So. If you're into, it's not like he went full ambient with this. It's essentially still a dance record. It's still mostly house music and even a couple of tracks that might pass for trance. Um, so I like this album a lot. Yeah, Sasha, Air Drawn Dagger, absolutely give it a listen. Daniel Bedingfield releases Gotta Get Through This. He is from New Zealand, but his he was mostly famous in the UK. Um, this is a, a great pop record it's sort of like the boy bands that are all about in america that are about to strike out and make their solo records this is kind of the blueprint for what you should be doing on a record like that uh there's a big single on here called the same title as the album called gotta get through this which is um if you know what uk garage is it's a very specific style of pop production in the uk and it's like the prototypical track it's it's absolutely amazing this is like maybe the best song of the month if it was just, if you were just to still it to one tune 
yeah, it might be got to get through this by uh, Dano Medical. This album sold 4 million copies as well. Um, a lot of those were in the UK, of course, but I really like this record. Very, very good. Um, moving into metal, there's quite a few metal records, but I'm not going to say much about all of them. There's only a couple I really want to talk about. You have um, Agaloc releasing The Mantle. This is a black metal record. And, you know, when we talk about black metal records, we're usually talking about the Scandinavian nations like Norway and Sweden and stuff like that. These guys are from Portland, Oregon. Um, it's interesting that Oregon would have its own uh, black metal scene to begin with. But what makes them special is that they um, are more inclined to play folk music. If you listen to the album, aside from little snippets that sound like traditional black metal, largely what you get is a post-rock influenced folk record. Um, and the reason why they're doing it and why it really does work so well is that the lyrical content of a lot of black metal usually does center around the magical nature of like the kind of frigid wilderness. It's a very weird thing is that for all of this music to center around, but it's very much about the environment in which it's made. So the fact that these guys grew up in Portland you know, in the Northwest where you get no sunlight and you're surrounded <laughs> by evergreen trees. <laughs> it makes sense that they would produce a record like this. But you, you know Believe what? Believe it or not, this is one of the... You know what? Oh, go ahead. After what feels like an eternity of heat index of 115 degrees in sunny Orlando, that sounds delightful. Yeah. Send me to where the sun yeah, isn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's what I personally really like. Well, one, I like super intense extreme metal i love that and black metal can be very extreme and i do love when they start incorporating all of these um kind of frigid atmospheres in their music it really is evocative and it does come through that that said like this is one of the best regarded black metal albums ever uh but for me personally it's not like my favorite or anything i think it's a fun record if you listen to black metal you sure have already already heard this band you already know what's up with these these guys um, but it's uh, distinctly American, too, which is very cool. Um, a group called Wolves in the Throne Room and another called Panopticon will follow suit with this, continue to continue to incorporate literally Americana folk music into black metal. You wouldn't think it could merge together. Like the pieces just simply couldn't fit. But it always seems to make it work, and there's some really good music in this scene. Uh, moving on, you have Dillinger Escape Plan, released Irony is a Dead Scene. Dillinger Escape Band is a legendary band in the world of metalcore, one of the biggest groups in it. They make very jarring and abrasive music, of course, and this is an interesting EP because it was made between having vocalists. So they had the guy that started with the band who was their singer, and I believe his name is Dimitri Minicus or something like that. He left the group um, on good terms, but he left the group. He wanted to focus on other stuff. Um, and they would eventually get this guy, Greg Pucciato, who would take over, and he is still to this day their singer. But at the time they recorded this, they didn't have a singer. <laughs> so they brought in Mike Patton, noted just weirdo musician. Here's Kanye West. Other yeah, it would be like if they brought in Kanye West of like the noise rock scene. No, they brought in the guy from Faith No More and Mr. Bungle and Phantomas. Uh, you know, Mike Patton has a million. He's got, you know, he's, what is it? Uh, He's got a million irons in the fire. He's always doing shit. Uh, it's an okay EP. It's kind of a footnote. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's out there. Some people will tell you it's amazing. Some people were like, holy shit, that's fucking incredible. I think it's just funny that they recorded this with, without a guy who wouldn't even ultimately be their singer. It was just something they did for fun. 
Um, a group called Meshuggah releases an album called Nothing. This is Swedish progressive metal. They have a very distinct subgenre dedicated to themselves called Gent, D-J-E-N-T. I personally do not like this style of music at all, so I'm a really bad person to tell anyone whether or not to listen to it. People that like this style of progressive metal think this is a good record and think this is like the band in the genre. But for me personally, there's just no groove to it. It's just hard to get into it. I don't know. Uh, a band I did like, uh, 18 Visions, releases an album called Vanity. Have you guys ever heard of 18 Visions no. by any chance? No. 18 Visions is like the definitive scene, hot topic looking band. Like they had like the swoop haircuts and the eyeliner and just like big gauged earrings. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Like they look like tool bags. Um, but this album is fucking mammoth. This is just one of the meanest metalcore records to come out around this time, and I absolutely love it. Um, at face value, you wouldn't think these guys were one of the tougher bands in the scene, but they, they really are. Um, they made a great record here. I absolutely love it. Would recommend people go and give it a listen. Albums like Van- or tracks like Vanity is really good, the, the title track. Um, one Hell of a Prize Fighter and The Critic are all really good tunes. Um, you know, this is one album. If there was one album I listened to the most, of this month it probably was this record i absolutely love it it became my de facto like gym track like album. Nice. i've just been listening to it while i'm at the gym so love it stone sour released their self-titled uh this is the, the, the only thing to worry about stone sour is that Corey taylor is the singer of the band he was in slipknot he's making this album that's more of like a southern rock record and less new metal i don't know i didn't like it i didn't think it was very good i would rather just listen to slipknot norma jean releases bless the martyr and kiss the child this is a debut record from a Georgia-based metalcore band. Really good stuff. I like this band. They're going to release a bunch of records, so like, you know, strap in. I guess we don't really need to talk about this one. We'll have plenty of other records for us to talk about. Um, but yeah, very frantic metalcore. And that's it, guys. That's 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 the month, and we missed so much. There's again, there's records I didn't talk about. And I felt like I had to talk about it. <laughs> Like, do, do, did any of these people consider like releasing records in June or July? Because I was just about to ask because those were dead months. Like, why were like you know we got like five hundred albums coming out in August? We should release that. It, it is very strange that like all all this media, like aside from movies, like for for music and video games, there's not a whole lot releasing within the months of June, July, and like even for the Game Boy Advance, we only have the one Duke Nukem game. But then like. For both the GameCube and the Game Boy Advance, like the back half of the year is going to be loaded. I'm talking about like four, five, six significant releases on each platform till January. Yeah, I've noticed that as a trend. It's usually like the last three or four months of the year is insane. And then usually going into January, February, it really cools Mm -hmm. off. Yep, uh, that's going to be that's going to be the trend for like this particular generation of consoles. Yeah. Um, do you have a John? John, we got a album of the month. I mean, JT over there, October. Oh shit! You know we didn't do a uh, game of the we didn't do game of the month. Uh, Mario Sunshine. Yeah, Mario yeah, Sunshine game of the month. Yeah. Album of the month. I mean, I would probably like I. I, I, if I were to take a guess, I would say that you're going to say Interpol, and I wouldn't object to that. That that was a, a good album. Uh, I would probably nominate, personally, uh, Slater Kenny, because I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Again, that was one that didn't I, I didn't make the cutting room floor no? here, so I, I missed out on that one entirely. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Yeah. Um, you're right, though. I would go with Interpol. 
I think Interpol's turn on the bright lights is fucking amazing. It is such a good There idea. it is. And Wes, make a prediction here. Yes. Make a prediction real quick. What do you think is movie of the month? I don't even know what movies there were. Okay, so we got Master of Disguise, Signs. Okay. Oh, before before we okay. get into it, should we delete the numbers? Are we going to do the, the number guessing game? Uh, should one of us that who is going to go up against West this go around? Uh, I, I can uh, I can I can look up the numbers because I haven't really looked at them. So so I'll I'll conduct the over under so that you guys can guess. Okay, I'll okay. delete mine then. I, I had them saved, but they are now gone. Okay, but um, okay. so I think the first like I guess major in terms of of maybe scope of the movie box office draw maybe um was master of disguise the dana carvey vehicle yes um and uh, by uh pa- perry andalin blake is the director who does not have a wikipedia page. oh no <laughs> oh god oh but this is a movie like obviously like trying to uh, uh, stand on the shoulders of the the success of Austin Powers by having another like SNL alum who does a lot of silly voices to have his own movie where he is again like an aspiring spy. I guess like Austin Powers is an already established spy, but Dana Carvey is kind of like this this moron who gets to become a spy, and then Dana Carvey gets to show off all his dumb impressions for I, I would probably guess no more than eighty two minutes. This cannot be a long movie. Yeah, I, I didn't watch this one. I remember like a decade ago, even longer than that, starting it and then just within 10, 15 minutes turning it mm. off. This was one of the most painfully unfunny things. You just feel bad for Dana Carvey as you're watching it. Like, you can tell he's trying, and maybe he thinks it's funny, but maybe he's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is the problem. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. And Dana Carvey is funny in, in other things too, so it's not like he is devoid of humor. It's just this one is just uh, it is a series of sketches. All of them are failures. It just it doesn't work. Nothing about this works. Um, regarded as one of the worst movies ever made, and why will just probably just about sweep the Razzies. This oh, time. amazing! I'm actually trying to look up the the budget really quick. Oh, um, sixteen million dollar budget. What do you guys think it uh, does box office? I'm going to say, frack, I think this did pretty good. 80? I don't know. 8080? 80? Yep. Uh, Where they grind? I don't think it did very well at all, but I mean, maybe it did okay. I'll say like 35. 40. 40 million. Eh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, like, same day, we get uh, signs. The M. Night Shyamalan fire follow up to. Uh, Unbreakable. Yeah, Unbreakable. Yeah, actually, I did watch it. I watched it too. I rewatched this one. Mm-hmm. I've seen it many times. Well, yeah. take us away, Wes. Tell us all about signs. I, I, it's it's signs. The aliens are showing up, and it's it's and uh, it's, it's like a... unambiguous from the beginning. Like, yes, there are aliens coming. Yeah, but at the same time, everybody is like, "Are there actually aliens? This is gonna be one of the movies where aliens don't show up." But well, by the time you get to the point where like they showed an alien on camera, you're like, "Oh yeah, obviously, like this isn't." Well, yeah, that's aliens. <laughs> but I, I don't think like he was ever trying to like uh, make you question what was actually happening. I don't think there was a point where he was like trying to pull the rug out from underneath you in this movie, which I think it might have been a problem of expectations at this point. I think, uh, especially after Sixth Sense, people were expecting M. Night Shyamalan to 
surprise you by the end and change your perspective entirely. The family's story was interesting, but because I was like, I don't know, it, it has been a long time since I've seen it, but it was like the Mel Gibson's wife recently died, and he's like struggling with that. I'm like, what does this have to do with aliens? Like, mm. it was just giving you the day in the life of this family. Well, I, I think. I think it. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, go ahead, John. Well, so there there is um i think something that's worth exploring in this movie about like a man who has lost his faith he was a man of the cloth he was of some sort of like christian denomination they call him reverend but he wears the priest collar it's a little bit confused um he's supposed to be an episcopalian okay. who rejected the whole right. title of father anyway so i'm not sure what that right is. so his his um he, he suffered this tragedy his wife was killed in a a tragic accident um and he, they're really messed up, like saying goodbye to her and everything yeah, he, as they like he, he, pull the truck out. And you're like, all right. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he, he had this this crisis of faith where he no longer wanted to uh, believe in God and follow his faith. And the the movie, I think, um, there is something interesting there. I don't know if it's well explored about having this crisis of faith, but then being directly confronted with with something that. Like before, like aliens, something that people were just taking on faith beforehand. Like, no, here it is. It exists. It's right here in front of you. And I don't think it's ever like successfully juxtaposed with his own, like coming back to his own faith as he does in the end. Spoilers for this 21 year old movie. Um, but, but I think that like there is something hinted at there of say, so, okay, there's, there's, uh, your willingness to come back around to a belief in things unseen after you're directly confronted with things that you might you might not have believed in before, but now you see right in front of you. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And yeah, I think that's an interesting decision by, you know, Shyamalan in making this film to literally have this crisis within the family be more important than the literal discovery mm. of aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, that... In, again, in spite of aliens existing, at no point is that the thing that makes him grapple with his faith. It's the trauma of losing the one that he loves the most. I think that he makes this, this family struggle, which is so mundane, and every family goes through these in some way or one way or another, right? That he makes this the centerpiece of what most other movies would have the whole thing be about, would be about the aliens. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of this backdrop. It's this event, this this one event that's a backdrop of what they're dealing with. Yeah, and, and you know, um, the, the, this movie, uh, spoilers, I didn't particularly like it. I don't particularly dislike it either. I'm yeah. kind of neutral on it. But there, there's another movie that'll come out within the next several years with Tom Cruise called War of the Worlds that will kind of do similar things, but much less successfully because it does make it a lot more about this bombastic alien invasion. It'll be so, the action movie mm-hmm. that I think most people would want from being told that it's an alien invasion. Right, but there, there is something like uh, bold about the filmmaking. Like there, there's like this thing happening that has been like a centerpiece of, of huge blockbusters. Like uh, before we started the millennium, um, Men in Black and Independence Day. Like there's huge action movies uh, involving these alien invasions. Like no, we're gonna do an alien invasion, but. We're gonna have it like be this much more confined story about this this family unit. Yeah. So so guys, the aliens are invading. What's your go-to dinner? Uh, tacos, obviously. 
You know, tacos is your last last uh-huh. dinner. That's not bad. <laughs> I had tacos for dinner tonight, actually. So it's out for you. So, I just, so you know, just as a, a personal note, because um, the the scene you're referencing is like uh, they they're pretty sure the aliens are are going to be like coming to them because they have the crop circles in their yards. So they're like, okay, we're gonna like we're gonna have anything we want for dinner. What do you want to have? What do you want to have in my house? If we were facing impending doom, no, we're making one dinner. I'm not making four separate <laughs> things here. We're having one thing. You don't get spaghetti. You don't get French toast. A thing. Because I'm not cleaning up. That's hard. Well, you won't have to clean up. The aliens are not coming into a dirty house here, sir. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to have guests, guys. We've got to clean this up. Yeah. Uh, can, can I get a few oh, things please. out? I, yes. like some stuff I no, 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 no. No, we're moving on. Let's <laughs> not talk about Spy Kids. <laughs> All right, so long, guys. Uh, anyone that eat, wants to eat spaghetti as a last meal deserves to die. <laughs> She's a child. She probably doesn't know other That's things exist. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but no, but I, I think that it's interesting that when you talk about this movie, it's not really even the cast you bring up first. It's M. Night Shyamalan. Mm. I think there's so few like event directors anymore. I think it's really cool that... M. Night Shyamalan can be bigger than the people in the movie. I think oftentimes we forget directors when we watch a film. We're just like, yeah. oh, who's this star? I like, can you name anybody that's directed a recent yeah, Avengers But nowadays, film? Like, Joss nowadays for me, like, yeah. Um, Kenneth Branagh. But nowadays, like, I hear M. Night Shyamalan did this movie. I turn and run. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so. I, think, I think at his worst, he's got, he's got two bad, two movies that I would consider clunkers. Mm, which ones? Uh, the Happening, Lady in the Water, and uh, actually, Lady in the Water is okay, okay in my mind. I don't think it's great, but I don't think it's terrible. Um, and what was that? Avatar. Avatar is obviously oh, bad. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's a <laughs> He didn't give a shit about Avatar to begin with. He's not one studio director. The actors Again, didn't care about it. <laughs> that's why it sucked. He's a studio director in that. He's the same as all the other guys that make fucking Avengers films and Wasp movies and shit. Or like. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't there to do a thing. He just was just told to make this existing properties film. Um, oh, but yeah, so again, M. Night Shyamalan made this movie, so there's this expectation that something cool is going to happen. It's the mm. same with the, uh, I, mean, I don't know, like um, like Christopher Nolan or maybe David Fincher. I think those guys still carry that gravitas that their films are event films. Um, James Cameron. And I think, it's, yeah, yeah, James Cameron for sure. There's no twist ending really. Everything's kind of upfront. There, there's no. There's not. He's not going to pull the rug out from under you. He doesn't need to. Um, I think he's got a solid enough film here. Without that, Mel Gibson is great in this. Um, I, I think it's nice seeing Joaquin Phoenix having again the most recent thing I remember him in was playing in Gladiator, and it's such a totally different character. It's very cool to see that range in him. Rory Culkin. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that was him. Abigail Breslin are great. This just tells me again in the same way that he works so well with Haley Joel Osment. For whatever reason, I'm not Shyamalan's uh, got incredible gets incredible performances out of the kids that he puts in his films. Which how often do we watch a film with kids? I wonder how hard he's hitting them. (laughs) Fairly hard. Could be. (laughs) Fairly hard. Um, I love the pacing of the film. I think it's it's quiet when it needs to be. It takes its time. It's not rushing from scene to scene. I think the performances are subdued and earnest. Um, I realize as I'm saying all this, I feel like I'm gushing about this film. It's not that great. It's a fine movie. But it's okay. It's not amazing. I also think there's a handful of really genuinely thrilling scenes that happen. 
the Brazilian birthday party. Oh yeah, that was that was probably one of my favorite sequences in the movie. Oh, it's so creepy. Um, the crop circle chase scene stuff is really really cool. The whole scene with the trapped alien in the basement after he confronts the guy who is and vehicularly manslaughtered. Played by M. Night Shyamalan. Played by M. Night Shyamalan himself. Um, The only thing that I think is kind of silly is like the whole perspective of what aliens should be like. It's got that very 1950s grays like they look like us they're just they just look like humans yeah and, and like, and like a lot you're, of, you're a lot of times very deliberately out of focus or uh, obscured by glare yeah like so these either like are from faster than light travel to get here or they're from an alternate dimension or something but they look just like mm. us what the fuck's that about and if here's the here's the thing and this is i shouldn't do this it's a science fiction movie it's not real in the first place why do i care but if they if their thing that that hurts them is water what do you think's in the air? Oh, you know, like, that's a good I, point. I think that was... There's water vapor in the air. Why isn't their skin just melting the second that they land It's on a very them? humid planet. Um, yeah, and I think that was one of the, the complaints I heard a lot about the game. The, the game, goddammit. The, the movie when it came out. I was like, oh, they're weak to water? Why do they come up to a planet that's 70% water? And, you know... It, it is a logical fallacy, but, you know, they're also aliens. So there has to be a certain, like, suspension of disbelief. My issues with the movie are not a logical fallacy about how much water exists on this planet. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, you should only have so much invested in that. Like, every science fiction film falls apart when you really start to break mm. apart the logic of it. So, yeah, I just think it is kind of funny. Apparently, their number one weakness was guns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and kitchen knives. They fell down. Too bad they landed in Texas. What a terrible Sorry. accident. They they fell down these stairs onto some bullets. Uh, one one note about the cast. Um, Wet Hot American Summer alum Michael Showalter is in the movie. He, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is... Um, in some sort of like like some sort of office, like a, a DMV or like a police station or a post office or something, and Michael Showalter is like behind him, never turns around to face him, but then goes and explains Joaquin Phoenix's character setup for the camera about how Joaquin Phoenix was this minor league baseball player who has the record for like home runs but also strikeouts, and therefore was never able to make it to the big leagues. You get like two minutes of exposition from Michael Showalter, who you never see again. Um, I didn't even realize that was yeah. him. I, I remember that scene very well. I just didn't. It was Michael Showalter. <laughs> and I, I'm watching it again the other night uh, for the first time in 20 years. Like that's that's Michael Showalter. What are you doing here? <laughs> but yeah, there there he was delivering this exposition. Um, and you know he was he wasn't bad at it. It's just that exposition is bad. And like um, a lot of things about uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character, not that like his performance, but like his, he was really great. Like during that whole like Brazil home video uh, scene, um, his his reaction to it was really really good. But a lot of the setup around his character, like the whole swing away thing, just really contrived. It didn't have to be there. We can just know that he's like an ex aspiring baseball star. There happens to be a bat on the wall. Yeah, he's probably going to be pretty good with that. You know, we we don't. He could have just been some guy with a bat. On right, the he wall. didn't have to be good <laughs> just... at baseball. He could just be like, "Hey, I got a bat, and 
I mean, I could swing a bat at an alien's head. That's I mean, fine. I don't. I'm not confident that your bat speed would be good enough to have any sort of exit velocity of any note. Oh, I'd be going to the gym. I could. I could wreck. Some it's alien it's head. all about timing, and it's not in your arms. It's in your hips. You got to put your whole body into it. I don't think that you would get I, the torque. It's it's a, it's a full body workout. It's mm. a full. I, I got this. You got, hurt yourself lifting wonderful. a TV. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about your hips and your hourglass shape. It's delightful. It was a sixty-five. It was a sixty-five. It was a big TV. Every come on. Um, yeah, it's fine. I can't get running heads. <laughs> uh, anything else about signs that we that we should address? No, no. I, I got to tackle every single one of my points. Thank you for that. Cool. Especially my hourglass <laughs> shape. <laughs> You have wider hips than you do a waist. Well, the listener doesn't see those hips, you know. So. The one thing about Wes's hips, they, they don't lie. That's um, fact. Box office budget of seventy-two million dollars. What do you think? Uh, what do you think it did? Uh, Ryan, you're first this time. I know. I know this did really well. Um, by the way, all of Shyamalan's films have turned a profit. Some of them many times over what their budget is. I would say. Uh, three fifty. What do you think, Wes? I was, I was gonna go two fifty. Four hundred eight million. Yeah, right. made bank. Yeah, good for him. Again, M Night Shyamalan has has never made a box office movie. Mm. All of his movies make way over their budgets. You guys watched Spy Kids two: The Island of Lost Dreams. That's a quick follow up. Yeah, I actually did watch. That. I think we just talked about Spy Kids like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is a Doesn't fairly... Doesn't this have uh, the guy film. from Malcolm in the Middle? What's his face? Brian Cranston? Is that this movie? Is that this movie? I don't think so. No, I mean, oh, no, Anto- I'm thinking of it every movie. Yeah, you oh, got Antonio I'm, Banderas. I'm thinking of Carla, Agent Cody Banks. That's stupid oh, thing. That's what I'm thinking of. Not even close. All right. No, no, no. It's it's like layers. There's actually three generations of the, the quote-unquote family in this. You've got... Antonio Banderas and Carla Gugino, they play the, the husband and wife. Their kids are Alex, or sorry, Alexa Vega and Daniel Sabara. Um, and even then, they have kind of this cameo. I don't think they were in the first one. The grandparents are there. The, the, the grandfather is Ricardo Montalban. Just like, that's cool. Cool seeing him there. Um, oh, but yeah, so what, what is Spike Kids? Spike Kids 2 is interesting. It's essentially, you know, if anyone hasn't seen what this is, it's sort of a play on uh, spy films, I guess. And if you think about it, we've just had two. We just had Men in Black 2 and Goldmember are both sequels to existing spy franchises, both of which kind of suck. <laughs> and this one's great, though. Like, Spy Kids 2 is fantastic. It's made by Robert Rodriguez, which is kind of interesting to think about because, I mean, he's best known for, like, very adult films like El Mariachi, Desperado, from Dust Till Dawn is like a hard R film. And then he makes this, and it's totally very similar. It's just, it's a kid's film. Um, I, I think this is, did, did, have you guys seen this one, or do you guys know much about it? I actually think I did see this one a long time ago, but mm-hmm. I could not remember it. I've not seen it. Yeah. The, oh, okay. The, the, the premise is that they're um, basically going to promote one of these kids, some, some of these, a pair of these kids within the spy organization, and it's not the the kids of this family that we've been following the whole time. It ends up being the other two through some kind of weird circumstances. And 
this whole big thing unfolds about there is corruption within their spy organization that they're trying to out. If you care about plots, that's generally what's going to happen. It's really more just an excuse to have a bunch of uh, kind of fun family beats as they're doing big action sequences and stuff. Um, I do like that the film isn't written, it's never really condescending to, on any level, it's, it's good for kids, it's good for adults, it's got a great family message, um, everyone's just really funny in it, no one's an idiot, hmm. everyone kind of gets to do their thing. Oh, the cast Not even Alan Cumming, he's not an idiot? Oh, no, okay. no, he's, he's, he's actually, if, if you remember correctly, he was the, uh, I think he was brainwashed or something, but he was the villain in the first hmm. He was the villain, and then Tony Shalhoub, who was, like, this cast is incredible. Tony Shalhoub was his assistant, and both of them are sort of back in more of a cameo role, I guess you would consider. Um, you've also got Mike Judge, you know, the voice of Beavis and Butthead, and Hank Office Hill, Space. Yeah. Uh, Christopher McDonald, he plays the president. Christopher McDonald is Shooter McDonald, uh-huh. for people who don't know the character actors the, by name. Um, Cheech Marin, Steve Buscemi. Bill Paxton. This is, it's a great. May he rest in peace. Yeah, um, the animation is a bit janky, but it's like kind of knowingly janky and fun. Um, I dug it. This is it's a good movie. It's actually cool. cool. Uh, budget of thirty-eight million dollars. What do you guys think? Wes, you're first. The budget was thirty-eight. Yep. A lot of CGI. Wow. Not good CGI. Uh, not good CGI, but I mean probably CGI. on par with Stuart Little too, though. <laughs> that movie costs like 170 million dollars. I mean, it it's a kids movie. I don't know what other kids movies came out this month, and Spy Kids two, quick turnaround. I mean, this guy, this yeah. guy hit over 200, so I'll, I'll go 200. That's a pretty good estimate, honestly. I was uh, maybe a little lower. Uh, I'll say 150. I'll give him some room. 120. Oh, okay. Still. Made its money back. Um, There's one, I didn't watch this one, but it's a Clint Eastwood movie called Bloodwork. It's uh, got Clint Eastwood starring as well as Jeff Daniels, Angelica Houston. Um, I actually don't remember this movie at all. Ryan, did you watch this one? I did not write anything down about it. I did not. How about you, Wes? Did you watch this? No, I, this does not sound familiar at all. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know this one. Uh, it's a, a guy, a retired FBI agent, recovering from a heart transplant. Anyway, we'll move on from uh, from this one because none of us watched it. How about Triple X? I I sadly did watch. Take this. us away. I watched it way back in the day. Yeah, you know this one from way back when. I mean, yeah. I don't. I really. This is when I don't have all of that much to say about it because I, I feel like it's such a. Come on, it's yeah. Vin Diesel as a super spy, not being a spy at all <laughs> just pretty much just walks in and starts shooting the place like i, I don't know vin diesel is yeah. xander cage yeah so it's directed by rob cohen who also directed the first fast and the furious film so that movie i'm sure made uh, an inordinate amount of money so they're like hey why don't you and Vin try and make another movie and they're like okay well what's the most obvious thing we can do how's about a really derivative spy mm. Um, and that's kind of what you got here. I think the only thing that sets it apart from uh, 
you know anything else that you've seen from the say a Mission Impossible film or uh, any number of Michael Bay films? Well, one so Mission Impossible was directed by Mission Impossible Two at least was directed by John Woo and Michael Bay, who say what you will about them, at least they're interesting directors. The they at least are bombastic. This is a really fucking boringly directed film. Yeah, Michael Bay blew up the moon. I mean, come on. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this movie is, is way too obsessed. Right, he did do whole... that movie, right? He did do... I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of something else. Are, are you thinking of... Um... Moonfall? Did he do Moonfall? No, that was the Independence Day guy. <laughs> oh, okay. I feel, like, I feel like that was a Michael Bay film with the mouth of outrageous like crap. He does Armageddon. Armageddon is And how dare you say anything kind of bad about Moonfall? Movie. That is a perfect movie. <laughs> <laughs> they ride a wave into space. Uh-huh. With a space. 10 out of 10. <laughs> you know, and I think Triple X could have used Here. some of them. <laughs> Take this gun. Take this gun. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, this is terrible. It, it's, it's, it's like at the whole like early 2000s extreme sports aesthetic. Mm. So, like, essentially, what this I don't even know if you remember this, but what this guy does for a living is basically like what would now be today like a social media influencer <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he basically films himself stealing cars and doing like extreme stunts he also yeah. has his like his code name tattooed in the back of his neck i don't think that's a very efficient way to keep it secret oh yeah the amount of times <laughs> that he calls himself a spy and the amount of times that his love interest who is an assassin addresses herself as an assassin really fucking bother <laughs> i think if you were those things you wouldn't tell you wouldn't be like i'm doing mm. that <laughs> you go around like Vin Diesel going around like I'm a CPA and like his cut off t-shirts I mean I think you just keep a low profile mm. I think you just don't mention that you do that if you're a thief and you're at a jewelry store I don't think you say oh hi <laughs> my name's Xander Cage professional thief could you show me your watches <laughs> uh, yeah no it's just this movie is so boring, and Vin Diesel has zero charisma. Mm. He is not doing anything to help this movie along. Uh, it's boring. It's, it's boring. It's you can be. They make sequels. You you can be bored for two hours and four minutes watching this movie. A uh, budget of seventy million dollars U.S. dollars. What do you guys think it did? Do I go first? I yes, you be first on this one. Yeah, I, I'm guessing it probably did pretty well. I'll say like two hundred. What do you think, Wes? I'm gonna go 150. We'll, we'll reverse. Two hundred and sixty-seven million dollars. Made some yeah. money. I mean, Fast and Furious was nuts, and it's more Vin Diesel. So, and Fast and the Furious is like a better movie. Like, I'm not saying it's high art or anything, but Fast and the Furious is a much better movie than this. Mm. Yeah, I'd rather watch Fast and Furious than this, and I'm not a fan of the franchise. Uh, either guys watch The Adventures of Pluto Nash. No. I think this is about the time, probably a little bit after the time where America realized, like, yeah, maybe we could use a break from Eddie Murphy for a while. Um, bl- he was riding high for oh, so yeah. long. Like, Eddie Murphy was, like, the king. Yeah, of he was huge. Uh, how about Blue Crush? You guys watch Blue Crush? I did not watch it, and I saw that it was directed by John Stockwell, director of Crazy Beauty. Hmm. I just remember it being sort of like a surfing. It was like it's kind of an excuse to put women in bikinis and watch them surf. Yeah, I'm not even sure what the plot is. You don't need an excuse for that. Uh, you guys, one hour photo. I did watch this. So movie. yeah, so did I. Robin Williams being a big old creepy creep. Yeah. Um, 
I guess you, you want me to go kind of lead with my thoughts? Yeah, go for it. Actually, I think I wrote more notes about this movie than anything oh, yeah? else. Um, oh, yeah? I love this movie. I thought this was absolutely incredible movie. Um, this is So this is the third of Robin Williams' quote-unquote dark trilogy. Um, typically, you don't see him in performances like this. And again, he brings it. It's kind of, it's actually pretty similar to his character from Insomnia, mm. um, someone who seems very mild manner but is capable of these kind of outbursts that you wouldn't expect. A little bit slimier uh, than a little bit, a little bit yeah. grosser than uh, mm-hmm. than he is in No Insomnia. But yeah, and it's a, it's a very small as far as thrillers go. It's very small scale. Like nobody nobody dies. Um, it's it's. Essentially about a photo uh, lab technician who sort of becomes obsessed with a family and then um, sort of intertwines himself and in, in their kind of their their disputes, their, their family dealings, and um, outs the husband as being unfaithful to the wife. Um, it's 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 not so much about that but that's essentially what you're watching again when you st- when you when, when you finish the movie and you think about what you actually just watched there's really not much to it but i, do, I really think it's everything that surrounds the film that makes this such a captivating feature for me mm-hmm. and it, yeah it really is like uh, about how invested you get in watching robin williams because like it's it's a character like he, he is stalking this family and you, i kind of get the impression and i don't remember if they overtly say like he's he's done this sort of thing before but i don't get the impression this is his first foray foray into getting really obsessed with a certain group of people it seems like there's a lot of people that he like develops photos for that he becomes more interested than he should be but um he's uh, uh gross and he's manipulative and he finds like these sneaky slimy ways of inserting himself into their lives uh, but he's also like deeply pathetic like uh you, you don't really get the full reveal to the end but there's like there there are certain like character moments that you get where like you despite how gross he's being you feel bad for the guy and it's a really fine line that they walk really successfully to where like you should not like this guy but you kind of want him to snap out of it and just go back to being a, a good chill dude who develops people's photos you don't want him to go down like this really like a dark spiral that he's going down as he like goes gets further and further into these other people's lives to the point where he's like meeting their kid at the kid's soccer practice and talking to him after him giving a toys like oh don't ask him to get in your car stop being so gross dude mm-hmm. yeah and, and, it, and it seems like a lot of what he's grappling with it ultimately seems like it's more about the father of the family mm. and it is about the wife or the son or anything like that he just has this very weird relationship they insinuate that he was abused as a child so it seems to have messed him up and so it seems that he has these expectations of how a father should behave and sees a, kind of a dirt bag of a father for this family and wants to sort of exact revenge this kind of way that he was unable to express himself when he was a kid and he was being taken away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not not to rationalize what he did, what he did is gross and, and disgusting in this movie. 
but at least I think that we're supposed to see that side of him. He's not just some serial killer. Right, right. Like, like you're saying, it's, it's gross and disgusting, but you want him to be better. Like, you see, like, he's, he's probably capable of being better than he is. And, like, that dad's not such a great guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's also not just him. Like, the cast, there actually is a very good cast here. Connie Nielsen mm-hmm. plays the mom and... You know, she probably has the second most robust performance of anybody in this movie. She has to do a lot. She has to carry a lot of weight and be someone that we feel this, feel that true sympathy for and, and sort of invest ourselves in as we're watching it. Um, you know, it's fun to see that his boss at the photo lab that he works at in the mall or whatever is Gary Cole. Mm-hmm. Gary Cole, the character actor who was famously the boss in Office. Now, also named Bill in both movies. Yeah. And you know what? He's a pretty good boss in yeah. this one. You know what? He, he's not bad. He, he tries to give advice and tries to cool him down when he's not behaving right. And he's, he's potentially causing issues at the store, gives him a second chance, you know, all that stuff. I also like that Eric LaSalle is one of the detectives. Mm-hmm. You may not recognize him. He was the heel from Coming to America. Um, I, just, I instantly recognized him. I didn't know him by name, but I knew him by his performance. Uh, he's, he's delightful. Um, oh, and also like the, the, the other, other detective, the partner yeah. detective, is a guy who's uh, uh, yeah, Clark, yeah, who yeah. who was involved in the MCU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, actually ended up getting a pretty big role. He's one of those guys that uh, was elevated from background character to being a much bigger piece of the mm-hmm. narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think more than the performances of the actors and the story itself, I think this is, if anything sticks out, this is a Mark Romanek film. Um, you know, Mark Romanek is a director. He's only made two movies. This is one of his two movies he's ever made. He's most known for music videos, and I think that really shows with the way that this film is made. It almost feels like a bunch of interconnected, just eye-catchingly beautiful vignettes. It almost feels like a series of, of music videos strung together. Um, I just I love the pacing, and I, and I love his use of staging and framing and. He, he does all of these clever little things that make for a beautiful film. Um, and I think that he also clearly has a profound appreciation for film itself. And that comes through here. Think of all of those wonderful little philosophical bits that Robin Williams gets to, na- gets to narrate, where he's talking about why film is so important and why we should care about it. And we think of it as such a throwaway commodity. Um, but to him, it means so much. And he has, like, I'm just thinking of some of the more beautiful moments that, that come up from this movie is what he's talking about, how, you know, every time you take a snap of photo of someone, it's them sort of fighting against their eternal fate. That this is this moment where, like, they bravely stood against the passage of time. You know, that when a house is burning down after you get the kids out, the only thing, you know, the next thing that you go back for is the family photos. Um just why it's so important and why it means so much to us and also because again this is the retro show this is such a nostalgic thing Mm. talking about how important like you know like celluloid film used to be having a camera and taking pictures now it's all on our phones and now we can snap a thousand photos and do whatever we want it's it's this it's so disposable for us but at the time like you had to snap you had to you know 20 or 30 shots and you had to get it just right and then you had to take it to a place that had a had someone that you you would interact with and they would make the film and granted sure you can go to your cbs and bring them some photos and they'll print them up for you like it's it's still something you can do but it's not something you really do because the medium's 
Well, they, they don't even like, um, at least the, the ones local to us. About, a, I think it was a little over a year ago, I bought Ripley Mika, like little disposable cameras. Like, yeah, you take pictures when you're you're visiting your cousins over the holidays and things like that. And all the pictures turned out terrible. I think they maybe this year they'll be a little bit better, but they're, everything was like out of frame. They had no idea what they were doing. But the, um, the, the place that we went to to go get them developed, like they actually had to send it away to an actual photo lab because they didn't have one on site anymore. Yeah, that's that's kind of sad to think, and that's what this guy's whole expertise mm. was. And I love it that that one wonderful scene where he gets fired, but he comes back to demand his photos get developed. Right, there <laughs> because he knows that that's the best machine in the state um, because he's the one that. That that's him. the excuse he gives, but he's he's worming his way back in there for for other mode. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a very specific reason he wants those photos developed right there. But he knows he, he he takes incredible pride. It's like the one thing about himself that he seems to take pride mm. in is an appreciation for film and how he does it. I also think that there is a deliberate choice from Romanek um, in this film and the way that he chooses to present uh, Robin Williams and the family. And I think if you wa- if you look at the way that he has Robin Williams, he's wearing ill-fitted clothing. He's always in mm-hmm. beige. If you look at his haircut, Robin Williams isn't balding, but he shaved the front part of his head to have a receding hairline. Just this, just the most unnatural-looking haircut. Like he's constantly in bright white fluorescent lights. His floors are linoleum. Everything about this guy feels so hollow and soulless. And then the shots of the family are all these like, you know, rich blues and greens, and everything feels like it's made of dark oak. You know, it's it's such a colorful and alive environment. And his seems so devoid of. And, and yeah, they're they're always like their um, their photos are always like doing things, and they have this really nice house, which causes some tension between the two of them. And like they're they're, they're having like these full lives, and Robin Williams, and like when you see his place, it's it's so empty. Like, oh the, the, yeah, yeah. He just has the most pathetic looking. Yeah, like the the only like thing that um, looks like there's a, there's any sort of uh, uh, activity or livelihood in his home is this wall of photos of other people. That's deeply. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I I don't know. I think that this is. I could I could just as easily see somebody watching this movie and hating it is the problem. Like I love this movie for everything that it's about. I don't necessarily know that it's a good film or one I'd even recommend to others um, because I don't know that they would technically be entertained. I, I think, But I do think this is a, a movie to truly appreciate filmmaking. I guess that's, to wrap it up, that's my, my take on this movie. It's, it's, it's so oh, I just saw that Robert Williams had died August 11th. Oh, shit. 2014, yeah. So he, he died in August, yeah. It was 2014, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys? I mean, let me find the the budget real quick. I had it pulled up, but now my phone has double crossed me. Fuck it. How do you how do you guys think this movie did? Oh, budget of twelve million dollars, a modest twelve million. Ooh. Wow. What do you? Get? Yeah, huh. yeah. I, I think I think Mark Romanek made an incredible movie for so little mm-hmm. money. I mean, granted, there's not a lot of big action scenes and stuff here. They probably just rented some cars. And, you know, he, he had some deliberate ideas about what he wanted to make with this film, but there's no no reason this thing needed a huge budget. I don't know how well this did. I did you go first last time, Ryan? I don't know. I don't. I don't remember either. Uh, oh, for I don't know. What was I'm gonna movie? go thirty six. That seems reasonable. I'll, I'll say a little. Nah, I don't think that much more. I'll say 
52. Oh. 52 million. I've been wrong every time. I've missed that one. The last movie I have on the list is Fear.com. The only one that we would be skipping, and I don't have anything to say about it, is Simone. That S-1-M-O-N-E. I don't know that one. Made by Andrew Nichol, uh, the director of Gattaca and Truman. Oh, shit. Where he wrote the Truman. Yeah, I, I really don't remember much about it, except I think that it's about having a... It's like the creation of a synthetic pop star hmm. or something like that. Okay. I think it's... It, at the time, it felt super modern, and nowadays it's it's very common for AI to be used in a lot of different ways. But I don't have anything to say about it. That's just out there. Um, and then, yeah, you were about to break into Fear.com. Fear.com. Um, uh, the, the one... Or The Ring Part 2. Like the, the, the one Hornby... Just the synapses story. I mean... Oh, are we reading the synopsis of the story? Yeah, a New York detective investigates mysterious deaths occurring 48 hours after users log onto a site. I, fear. It, it's weird, like that's the ring. I mean, like, they, it's this movie is like so convoluted and meandering. I mean, I think that there are like interesting things about this movie, but it, it's it takes like so long to actually get to the actual like plot. Um. That like this movie is all like almost more fun to watch with other people because there are things like it's so self-serious and very deeply silly. Like if you go to the website and see the thing, you you die within forty-eight hours unless you find the person who's like talking to you on the website, and it's sort of like Matrix style where the the lady in the screen can talk to you and you type messages to her to ask her questions and she answers you. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's there's a lot happening in this movie. There's a little girl who, like, uh, when, when you watch the when you, when you watch the thing on the website, you see the little girl like playing with a ball around, and no one else can see her. But not everyone sees her; only some people see her. And like, not only will like uh, you'll you'll die from like hemorrhages, but not everyone dies of a hemorrhage. Some like one guy, like his car just went haywire. Him visiting the website made his car malfunction and crash him into uh, a, a wall and jettison him out of the windshield, and he died. Okay, so now we're now we're mixing Final Destination, with right? The ring. Right. So, well, here's the here's the thing. I feel like that it it simultaneously took. It realized that there was a fork in the road that it could do one kind of movie or another kind of movie, and it just decided <laughs> where this is a this is a haunted dead girl movie. Simultaneously, it is a sadistic serial killer uh-huh. movie, and the haunted dead girl narrative solves the sadistic serial killer movie totally inadvertently. <laughs> like it has both of these plot lines that really have nothing to do with yeah, the, the, the writer and the director thought they had like this <laughs> galaxy brain like really amazing like two stories that were going to come together in an unsuspecting way and they just felt convoluted they, they were both given a different script <laughs> and they're like wait a minute wait, what does yours say on wait which movie are you making yeah it's, it's... What was I got? It's half saw hostile, and then also yeah, half like ring and dark water. Like it's simultaneously both horror franchises just sort of slapped together. It's 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 kind of delightful. I mean, yeah. it's it's not good, but I would sooner watch this. Oh, the movie, the movie definitely. I, I would sooner watch this over Pluto Nash. Yeah, I think it's. Oh no! I watched the trailer for Pluto Nash here. So I gotta go. I'm intrigued. Oh god! 
They're gonna come back on a mini show and be like, guys, Pluto Nash. Oof, that's know. a goodie. Like that's. <laughs> oh, and by the way, so William Malone is the director, and he's the one that made that remake a couple years prior to this, um, The House on Haunted Hill. Okay. And I, I love that movie. The movie's grisly as fuck. Like it's really good horror film. I mean, well, again, it's not. It's it's his movie. It's not good. It's not well made, but it's entertaining and it's it's a bloodbath movie. It's great. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what this is. I feel like this movie. Uh, it is like he mashed together a whole bunch of shit that he shouldn't have, like where he took like the Marilyn Manson industrial aesthetic and then mixed it with the current trend of J horror spookiness, and then also have been watching a lot of like tim burton's films so there's all this kind of weird vaudevillian <laughs> like all at the same time and the like the direction is is so wild he, he's constantly doing interesting things bad good or bad some of it's hilariously bad but there's always something weird happening oh and a ton of tna this thing is like gratuitous you know they it's almost got an nc7 well it originally got an nc17 rating and then they had to recut it to get it to an R rating. Hmm. I wonder what they yeah, cut. Like, Let's get the DVD. <laughs> I'm guessing it was um, probably like full frontal while the girl was being tortured. Mm, maybe. Uh, oh, would, God. Yeah, that would be my guess of the scene where they clearly kind of cut it differently to make it not seem so awful. Mm. Um, again, yeah, because this is, this is very much a saw like sadistic torture yeah yeah there, there there's like uh several scenes of the movie of the serial killer torturing a woman yeah and essentially he's making like content for snuff mm. films like it's gro- it's yeah. gruesome and and that's also the interesting thing is like this is sort of the unregulated web but that was supposed to be like oh this is how it is now with technology we'll figure it out in the future and here we are 20 years later and it's like Nothing's been done to regulate that stuff. It's there's still all kinds of horrible content. I mean, now now instead of like uh, torturing people on the internet, now we torture democracy. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it. So with oh, so you've been you've been you're back on track. <laughs> <laughs> I never left. <laughs> um, so there there's a budget of forty million dollars in this movie. None of it was spent on lighting. In case you're curious. Right. Because <laughs> this movie you can't see anything, it's so dark. Um, how do you think how do you think this uh, this movie did? Thirty two. What was the forty budget? million estimated? 40. <laughs> I think I don't think this movie made its money back. Also, uh, would you say thirty two? Uh, I'll give you a little bit of breathing room. I'll say twenty five. Thirteen million dollars. It did not make its. <sighs> That's a shit. And that's a shame. Like, so this movie has a three percent, three percent on uh-huh. Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-huh. Like, what? No, this movie's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I get it. Nobody wants to give it a positive review. I mean, sure, but like, there's, this is like Master of the Sky. Like, Triple X is a worse film than this. I, I think, like, sure. we're we're still at the beginning of the millennium here. A very cynical time where, you know. There, there's, there's such like a, a rush to like snap judgment, like no, this is good, this is not good. There, there's, there was, I, I read through some of the reviews, some of them like the one-liners, really funny. There's some really good ones in there, but there, there's such a rush to like put harsh judgment on. It's like no, this is, this is, it's, it's a binary, it's either good or not good. There's no room for nuance within any of the reviews. Yeah. 
I actually think there was one line from a review that I read where I think it kind of perfectly captured what this is about. And the line I have already here said, um, if this had been produced by a German impressionist in the 1920s, we'd call it a masterpiece. Mm. I think that there's, this is a deeply experimental film and it's, yeah, it's just knowingly surreal. It's, it's, a, it's a strange movie. Again, it's, it's hard. I don't know anyone that could watch this and be bored. Like you, you may hate it, but again, this is one of those movies you need to you'll, talk out. Why you'll, you'll feel things about it. That's for sure. <laughs> and I personally loved it. I would watch this thing again just to remember how insane oh, let's, it is. And just to maybe, let's like, do it. Now that I know where it's going, I kind of want to watch it again. Just let's like, do it. I'm in. Wes, I'm you're good. no, Wes, Wes. I'm, I'm, no, you I'm have good. to. I'm, There's a whole thing with cockroaches, Wes. What the? F- no. Mm-hmm. Just, just, we'll watch Wet Hot, uh, Wet Hot American. <laughs> Double feature. <laughs> I mean, this makes Rain of Fire look like. <laughs> Don't you dare back to bad, bad talk Rain of Fire. How dare you? Rain of Fire. Is I mean, a, see, yes. that, that's it. We talked about Rain of Fire earlier in the year, like, and that that movie got pretty well panned by critics too. I don't think they knew what was coming. Like, they're like, "No, Rain of Fire is terrible." Yeah, the Master of Disguise is coming. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think we talk about Rain of Fire enough. <laughs> um, movie of the month, one hour photo. That's what I nominate. Rain of Fire. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think Rain of Fire. No, no, you got to. I think One Hour Photo is, is is the best film, but I could totally get people. Just if if you were going back and looking back at the films of this era, you probably should watch Signs. But One Hour Photo is definitely your your film. I think yeah, photo, Signs is Signs is probably more easily digestible. Yeah, no. but and Fear.com. Fear.com is just so great. Triple triple feature. Great. I, I love it. Um, I you know where we're running really long here. I was going to talk a little bit about comics. But it's 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 going yeah yeah we're over two hours hurry yeah we've been so going. yeah I think I will postpone that probably till next time there's some interesting things going on with X Men comics but we'll talk about that another time next up is going to be the official show Ooh. Yeah. and we'll talk about uh, some some news and um maybe some new games it's not really like there there's a few like indie games that came out that you know will be at least worth mentioning i haven't really been playing much of anything outside the usual suspect zelda and i finished up pikmin earlier today so um, there's, there's there's actually um I, I don't think it'll be out before we record but there's an update coming to the ninja turtles shredder's revenge game a couple of new characters are being added mm. at the end of the month and also like yeah, it's talking to Jimbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, today, as of recording, um, there's a surprise announcement and release on Switch. Uh, Red Dead Redemption One got it's released on, on Switch. Interesting. Yeah. That's I mean, weird. I'm not going to buy it, but interesting game to come out. No. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, that's it. End of podcast. So long. Later, game.